Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I am your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Quickly, before we start, if you haven't done it already, hit that like button. Please hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to hit that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. As sometimes, I'm running a little late. <laughs> Just sometimes, not all the time. Maybe more often than I'd like to. More often than we'd like to. As you know, this is the Saturday free show. There is no bonus champagne room. It is our way of allowing you guys to get a glimpse of what goes on beyond the velvet rope here at TIR. So if you're enjoying what we do here and you have the means to support us, think about becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to past and present champagne rooms, movie night, and more. All of us here at TIR would like to send a big thank you to all the subscribers on all platforms. Without you, we couldn't do this. The holiday season is here, and the TIR website has some new items. Perfect to start a fun-filled conversation with your conservative or liberal family members. That's right. What is going to start the conversation up at the Christmas slash Chanika slash Kwanzaa table like an Anglo-pessimism shirt. Speaking of Anglo-pessimism, let me bring in my favorite female Haitian friend and the voice and the faceless voice of reason on the show. Please welcome M2 Song. Hello, hello. So good to see you, Jason. Good to be here. <laughs> You didn't see me yesterday? Uh, yeah, I did see you yesterday. <laughs> That's why you're like, you yeah. every day. That's why you're so frustrated. You're like, yeah, yeah, good to see you again. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, did you get a chance to crack open our guest book? I definitely did. It was a good read. It is. It's an exciting read, isn't it? Yeah. You you want to know what's going to happen next. I do. He's a, he's a hell of a writer. He's... He writes in a very exciting way. He also talks in a very exciting way. Like, now I want to go hang out with Vincent Bevins. I don't know where he is in the world right now, but I feel like um, like we, we we made the connection through Alex Hockley, mm -hmm. and I feel like if the three of us hung out, hijinks would be had. Well, when he comes on the screen, you'll see he is in heaven. Is where he is. <laughs> Maybe that was the end of his hijinks. <laughs> well, our guest today has a new book, and it is something that we've been talking about on this show. It is something that friends of our show have been talking about. Um, actually, at the live uh, book launch for I Was a Teenage Anarchist, uh, Scott Parkin. Right. came up to me after the show and was like you know I just finished Bevan's book and I was like did you like it he goes I did <laughs> <laughs> I did because <laughs> you know we always bring up uh, mass protest and why these things aren't happening and I have my feelings and then I'm listening to the Bunga cast and they have Bevan's on and he's answering a lot of my questions. So I was like, I need to get this book so I can get these questions answered in 300 pages. 
Uh, we are currently in a moment of mass protest all over the Western world to stop the murderous bombing campaign in Israel. Not every mass action we see is filled with pro-Palestinian voices. There are many pro-Israel people that also want to see the violence end. And for a short moment, many felt as if the outside pressure was starting to influence the powerful in Washington and Israel to call for not just a ceasefire, but for Israel to stop altogether the assault on, for the most part, a defenseless population. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Right there on the mic. Three years earlier, <laughs> protests exploded on a global scale during the peak COVID shelter in place summer of 2020. The murder of George Floyd was a tipping point for a politically frustrated populace that was witnessing a rise in far-right leadership in the U.S., Philippines, Brazil, just to name a few. People came out in mass to call out the murder of unarmed civilians by militarized law enforcement. Cities burned. Promises to reallocate funds into what people felt were less punitive measures, defund law enforcement was a unifying call, but rarely was it done. Movements to abolish and defund have quieted down, and we asked the question, where did all the protests go? What did they accomplish? Our guest today asked that question on a global scale with his latest work, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and The Missing Revolution. Wherever you are watching or listening to the show, there are links in the, in the description to the book. Our guest, Vincent Bevins, writes, of course, people always had always people always had ways to react against ruling elites. These interventions were sometimes violent or imposed direct costs on the targets. People got killed. Property got destroyed. Grain was seized by the population and so on. The academic terminology for the wide set of practices people use in these moments from the ancient world to the 21st century is contention or contentious politics. The U.S. sociologist Charles Tilley noticed that across history, when people protested, they tended to reproduce practices that already existed around them. They drew upon an existing repertoire of contention. The metaphor is fittingly theatrical and musical. There are a set of instruments and routines that a community has, a selection of performances everybody knows, and they use them in an improvised way. In moments of rebellion, people turn to what is familiar, even if something unfamiliar might work much better. In 16th century France, Tilly shows, through an analysis of early national media, that people would have never thought of demonstrating or organizing a rally or strike in the way we do today. They did, however, know how to run a tax collector out of town, force down the price of bread, or put on a shivari ribi. The performance of a group belittling offensive songs or belting offensive songs outside the home of a local offender, demanding retribution before they will shut up. Over time, innovation occurs and new routines of contention emerge as cultures change, but this process is relatively autonomous from the underlying causes of the revolts. That is from the book, If You Burn, by Vincent Bevins. Again, wherever you are watching and listening to the show, there's links in the description of the book. Please welcome, coming live from a secret location, Vincent Bevins. Hello. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Of course. Uh, honestly, really admire your work uh, and not just this, but also the Jakarta Method. 
um, you said you conducted over 200 interviews. Yeah. Uh, that's some damn good reporting. Uh, this book is such a brilliant, well-researched piece of work. What prompted you to go on this journey and interrogate the 2010s? Thank you, first of all, um, for the introduction, that question. Um, I've been on this for about 10 years, really. Um, it all started in Sao Paulo, the largest city in South America in 2013, when I was working as a foreign correspondent, um, when a small group of leftists and anarchists set off a, uh, a wave of protests that grew very, very large. And then ultimately, in the short term and then in the long term, allowed for right-wing elements to take control of what was at least the narrative as to what was happening on the streets mm. and then to take control of the country. So there's not a direct line from the protests of June 2013 to the election of Jair Bolsonaro in 2018. But living through those years, I, like many, many people in Brazil that had lived through the strange phenomenon of June 2013, I mm. think I think all of us became concerned with this question. How is it possible that apparently the country can come out in defense of better social services and less police violence? And then soon afterwards, seemingly as a result of those very protests, <laughs> the country is handed over to a man that decimates social services and celebrates police violence. So from 2013 to 2020, every time that this happened somewhere else, I was always paying attention to be like, uh, um, I hope this doesn't go the way things did in Brazil. Sometimes it did go that way, sometimes it didn't. And then I also started to look backwards on the things that had happened before 2013, because I believed that the media, the media's decision to interpret what was happening in Brazil as if it was like the so-called Arab Spring and other uprisings around the world contributed to the final outcome. So I was in the middle of an explosion that sort of literally arrived um, outside my bedroom in Sao Paulo 10 years ago. Uh, there was no way around it. It changed my life and made the lives of much, much, you know, what came afterwards made the lives of many of my friends much, much worse until 2019, 2020, when the pandemic is hitting uh, Brazil and I decided to pitch this book. So it's, it's really that long, strange, mystery that began in June 2013 in, uh, in, Sao, in, in Sao Paulo. And you were living there doing reporting at the time, and the book kind of starts off, you're talking about um, the police repression and and how the protests started um, about the, the raising of a fair. I was in Brazil in 2019, mm -hmm. and Bolsonaro was cutting pensions? They were doing pension reform, probably. You, you would have been, yeah, uh, yep. Um, and the city, like while we were out, I think we had, a, we missed a driving day because like everything shut down and I had never seen anything like that before. You know, they were like lighting tires on fire in Sao Paulo. Yep. Uh, it, it gets, it gets rowdy out there. They're, they're really serious about it. And I don't even remember, did, did the pension reform actually go through? Yeah. Hmm. Yes. No. Yes. Yes, it did. Uh, quite controversially. I mean, the government that was installed after the parliamentary coup in 2016, both Michel Temer mm. and then ultimately Jair Bolsonaro, delivered quite a lot of what the business class wanted. Um, and then by the time the pandemic started, right after, I guess, your last visit, Bolsonaro demonstrated himself to be quite bad at governing the, the country in almost every other way. 
So after delivering a set of goodies to the ruling class, the business class from 2016 to 2020, um, parts of like, I don't know, what do you want, the national bourgeoisie, the local business elites, um, capital, slowly sort of abandoned Bolsonaro because I think kind of they got quite a lot from him and then he was bad at administration afterwards. And then like the ways in which he was bad at administration were incredibly visible. You know, if you zoom forward from 2013 when I'm living in downtown Sao Paulo to, to uh, 2020, when the pandemic arrives in, in downtown Sao Paulo, it's like a different universe. It's like it's like a movie about the end of the world where it's like, you know, a relatively normal urban center in the middle of a large South American country. And then in 2020, it's like kids huddled around trash cans on fire, cooking noodles, trying to stay alive, um, literally like roving gangs in the streets, mm-hmm. like carrying torches, try, like because like trying to find anyone to rob to get some kind of um, 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 access to finance, things got quite bad. Um, but yeah, that would have been what, one year after, I suppose, last time you came. And it's, it's also interesting that a lot of this stuff, and you know, and, uh, and they talk about this a lot in the, uh, end of end of history and mm-hmm. the fact that you also, in the book, you bring up the fall of the Soviet Union, because I think it's a very important point we're going to later, but, um, the idea of corruption can be a unifying force for people to come out in mass and protest. And in the South America context, you always hear the term corruption when it comes to politicians. So there's almost kind of a natural uh, mistrust uh, of politicians, regardless of their, their, the politics they may be presenting. And one thing I found fascinating about Lula, and, and maybe it was just the people that I was around um, our tour manager, uh, his parents were part of PT in the early days. And so he he actually had like an autographed copy of, of Lula's book from like the early 90s that he wrote. Um, so I, I we were in some leftier circles in the heavy music scene. Um, but as we were saying off air, we definitely found ourselves <laughs> in some in some fashy in some fashy territory. But there was one thing that that I that I found surprising was that this, there's this kind of we all hate corruption. All politicians are corrupt, um, and Lula kind of skirted that for some time while he was in office until you know sadly he couldn't because when we were there he was actually in prison. Um, you talk about how these protests kind of got co-opted by a right-wing element and a national, well, a nationalist element as well. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's so easy for that to happen? Yeah, that's good. And, and I think anti-corruption is really interesting because anti-corruption is something that everybody, everybody by definition is against. Like it's built into the phrase, like it's tautologically true. Like, every like you cannot be pro-corruption it's like it's 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 um by definition something is bad um but then always in the real world the ways in which you actually do an anti-corruption crusade the ways in which you actually decide to look at uh the way that a state is functioning or try to use traditional or punitive or political uh solutions to the problem of corruption always like means something concrete. So like mm. anti-corruption is something that is 
perfectly suited, that fits right into the kind of vacuum, the kind of confusion that was created by June 2013, which is the same kind of vacuum and confusion, which allows for co-optation. So I'll try to explain what that is, because I think hopefully I can connect the two things. Mm -hmm. if I can keep my concentration. The original set of protests in June 2013 was organized by a group called the Free Fair Movement, who all came from basically the anarcho-punk scene. Uh, they were co committed horizontalists. They had been working for eight years studying ways to push the country towards ultimately free public transportation in all instances. But what they would actually do is that every time there was a price rise, they would organize very contentious, uh, very visible, very uh, 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 um, prefigurative, direct action oriented demonstrations against the price rise. So you do this four times in June 2013. The mayor of Sao Paulo is from the Workers' Party, from Lula's party. He's um, somebody who himself has come up as a dissident fighting the dictatorship that was the power uh, that he faced off against when he was younger. After the first four, uh, 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 on the morning of the fourth protest, Brazil's mainstream media, which is controlled by oligarchs <laughs> and populated by the types of journalists that come from the parts of Brazilian society that never have any experiences with the Brazilian police. They never have, they have no, this is the class of Brazilians that have no direct experience of what military police repression actually is. Mm -hmm. This class of mainstream media outlets calls for a crackdown on this movement on the, the morning of June 13th. Now, again, if they had known what the military police are actually like in Brazil and the military police in Brazil are a legacy of the US-backed dictatorship um, that took over in 1964, then perhaps they should have understood what was going to come after they asked for a police crackdown. But what happens is the crackdown comes, shocks the country, not only hits the punks and the anarchists that they believe to be legitimate target, uh, targets of police repression, um, the crackdown hits journalists, it hits me, but my case doesn't, doesn't matter who I'm fine, but it hits other journalists whose cases go viral and convince the main, the same exact media outlets that called for a crackdown to switch their narrative to say, actually, this is, instead of a, a group of anarchists and punks on the streets that we need to clear off the roads, this is a patriotic uprising in defense of mm -hmm. the right to rise up in defense of something. Mm -hmm. But in that moment when they're trying to explain why it's good now, that is a vacuum of meaning. There's like a, there's like, there's a moment where it's up for grabs what this thing is going to mean, because they're not going to take the position of the horizontalist anarcho-punks that demand the decommodification of public transportation. That's obviously not going to be the reason that they supply. So there's this kind of battle that, that happens on social media, but also in traditional media over the next few days as to what actually this thing is about. And so the people, the new people that show up in the, in the, on the streets four days later, three days later, 13th to the 17th, four days later, have new different ideas and competing ideas about what this is all about. Now, anti-corruption is one of them. And as I said, I think this is one that fits right in there because you can't say you're against it. You know, in practice in Brazil, anti-corruption ultimately became a corrupt far-right crusade that broke the laws in a very corrupt way and with the ultimate goal of putting Lula in jail. But in, in this, yeah, Lava Jato, Lava Jato, which has now been discredited. Um, one of the major figures just was stripped of his congressional seat. Uh, the other has been uh, declared uh, to have you know, badly abuses authority by the Supreme Court. But in this moment, in when millions of people come to the streets, 
they come to the streets with a different idea of what the thing is about than the original organizers. And then they enter into conflict with the original organizers. And their idea of what the thing is about often comes from a mainstream medium. So that has a center right valence. Mm -hmm. And then the new arrivals enter into initial, initially verbal conflict with the, the original organizers. And you said like, there's kind of a national tinge to it. And I see like on the first, the first time I see these two groups come into, into contact, there's a groups of like, there's a group of like young skinny punks and they see these like bulkier, obviously more middle-class guys wearing like waving flags and wearing yellow mm -hmm. uh, Brazil football shirts. Now in 2023, we would very easily recognize these guys as the pre Bolsonaro movement, like proto Bolsonaristas, right? But mm -hmm. at the time, these young punks, and anarchists are saying like, oh no, 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 guys, like that's not how this works. They're trying to like explain how how the how the protest is supposed to be, not about national like vague nationalism. They say, no, vague nationalism can lead to fascism. You don't want to just show up, wave a flag. We need to have like unite behind a, like this particular demand. And the new arrivals were like, fuck you, I'm not listening to you. I don't care about your shit. And the new arrivals eventually actually physically throw many of the original organizers off the street by the end of the month. That's that's so insane um, that that happens because that's literally kind of like the definition of how you know, fascism starts, right? Like we don't want to listen to you. you. Got us all fired up to not to listen and to throw our middle finger to the government. We're throwing our middle finger to you too. Um, there is something interesting that to me about those protests where they're protesting the fair hike and they're doing like you know blockages. And I think oh, I can't remember the country was it Chile or Argentina where something similar happened to Chile. Chile, Chile has a, the 2019 Estadio Social is also begun by a protest against a fair rise that is carried out through the blockages of turnstiles. Yeah. And that gets the support of the people. Lots um, of people. And then you see something mildly similar in the UK. I don't think it had anything to do with the fair hike. It was more of just a protest by, I can't remember the name of the movement, it's an environmental movement where they like glued themselves to the train. Um, do you remember that one, Toussaint? I don't. Well, there's very it's recently the Extinction Rebellion was maybe a couple of years ago. That was quite, Extinction quite horizontal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then now you have um, Just Stop Oil, which is a little bit more mainstream. And, and I, it, just, it feels like one is really so people-focused that you're going to get more people to want to be a part of your movement, and the other is almost so bourgeois, it's almost antithetical. Mm. You know, we're going to shut down all you know, public transportation. It's like, yeah, but I need to get to work. <laughs> well, the idea, and this is the thing that the, 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 the Movimento Passi Libri, the, this, this, this really de dedicated, disciplined, um, idealistic, horizontalist group, hmm. they had a theory that they had been developing since 2005 that they will intensely plan the kind of interventions and demonstrations and, uh, direct action that will ignite a popular revolt. And in ways which I think are often like not really held too consciously or not analyzed too carefully, it is always assumed that a popular revolt will somehow be good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it happens and it's not good. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't go the way that they want. It doesn't go the way that they want at all. Because as you say, the people come out in support of this thing that they have started. 
but mm -hmm. the people is always a concrete configuration of persons. It's it's the it's it's not and it's not the persons that they expect to come into the streets that they actually see. Um, part part of this could have been the fact that center right media really takes their uh, demonstrations and runs with it. So the people that hear about it are the people that are watching that media. Mm -hmm. Part of it could be that they've chosen the streets as a site of contention. They've they've believed that downtown Sao Paulo, the center of the, the largest city, is where like the struggle should happen. But then they also really realize, they realize very quickly, oh, this is like the center of the, the economic capital. The people that live right here aren't really the working class Brazilians that we believe to be mm -hmm. like the real people. There's all these other people, and these are not the people that I expected to come out. And these new people are yelling at us, or attacking our friends, or 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 ripping flags down, or or saying that the, this is actually a movement against the left. When we all know that just two weeks ago it was only the left that was actually here. And so they were quite skilled at putting together a plan that would cause the people mm -hmm. to come into the streets. But it just turned out that when the people come into the streets, that doesn't necessarily push history forward in the way that you expect you often no one and, and no one no one knew what to do with this explosion of energy with this explosion of humanity on the streets the original organizers didn't know what to do the mayor of sao paulo didn't know what to do dilma Rousseff, the president of the country didn't know what to do but some you know a lot of people realize especially right-leaning libertarian kids mm -hmm. realize oh this is the meaning of this thing is up for grabs this is this is ripe for contestation we can try to re-signify what this is actually all about. And a group of kids that are funded by think tanks in the United States, uh, intent on pushing the country to the right, one of them is trained under the Koch brothers. Jesus. Um, they make a bid to re-signify what this is all about. And I think that they ultimately, in the long term, win. Mm -hmm. uh, they create a group that is meant to trick people into thinking that they're the same group as the original organizers, to steal the thunder, to steal the sympathy that has been generated by the original uh, uh, punks and leftists. And it works. They end up leading protest movements into 2015, 2016, that call for impeachment, that support Lava Jato, and then they're elected into Congress, and now they're major political players, whereas the original punks and anarchists are not really on the scene anymore in Brazilian politics. Tucson, I know you wrote some questions. You want to ask the second question? One moment while this loads. Okay. Why do you think this is sort of taking a zooming kind of moment? Why do you think it's important to take a global approach in comparing and contrasting protests worldwide? Yeah, absolutely. So it is, I, I make the point at, in the introduction that it is essential to, okay. When this happens, just because we're in this story, when mm -hmm. this happens, other parts of the global media, other correspondents, other journalists that work for the most powerful and loudest outlets in the global system. I think it's an, I think it's a big problem that we are the loudest outlets in the global system, but the US corporate media, the English language corporate media, um, other people in my class that understand even less than I do as, of what is happening on the streets, they say, oh, well, Brazil's doing a spring. This is the Brazilian spring. Mm. So the media begins to interpret this thing as if it is Tahrir Square as if it is the, the type of uprising that has started in North Africa a few years earlier. And then in Gezi Park, and this happens weirdly through my Twitter account, is that I used to do a tweet that goes viral in Gezi Park. And then in Turkey, people are sending me all these messages saying like, the whole world is Gezi, the whole world is Sao Paulo. So in this decade, if you want to tell this, the true story of how this decade evolves, 
you see not only some movements on the ground self-consciously copying something that they saw elsewhere. So Occupy Wall Street is Adbusters magazine saying we're going to do Tucker Square in America. Mm -hmm. um, Hong Kong 2014 is Hong Kong saying we're going to do Occupy Wall Street, which was a copy of Egypt, which was inspired by Tunisia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fascinating to me, I think, is that by 2014, when they do this new copy, it's already become clear that Tucker Square didn't really work out. So yep. on the one hand, to tell this story, you have to look at the ways that the movements copied other movements, even when the, the contexts were wildly different. But you also have to look at the ways in which the way the thing proceeds is affected by the way that the media interprets it. And the media often interpreted it in a very one-dimensional, stupid way, mm -hmm. as if it's like that other thing that looks kind of the same. Oh, look, there's lots of people in the streets. Uh, it looks like the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's so it's like the same as the fall of the Berlin Wall. Or like, oh, look, there's a bunch of people on the streets in Brazil. They're doing Arab Spring, even though that started as dedicated attempts to overthrow dictators who'd been in power for decades, whereas Brazil was governed by a popularly, a popular democratically elected left of center president. So it, like this kind of strange sort short circuiting happens everywhere. So to tell this story, I think you have to both point out the ways in which they shared things because they tried to share. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, they had commonalities because they were trying to reproduce things that they saw elsewhere, but also the ways in which their very, very real differences were flattened or erased by media coverage. And just to f finish the answer, that first thing of the two that first half of the of, of that first part of the dynamic um, is related to what you read in your introduction, right? Mm -hmm. When people respond, something very bad happens. They know that there's been a government abuse. They know that there's been a horrible case of police brutality. So this is this shocks me. This is something we must take action against. I think this process of copying or doing something that you know has been accelerated in the age of, you know, intense mediatization. It's not just social media, it's just media. everything's media. We're always on the media. We're, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. we're always we're always interacting with each other in, in mediated ways rather than face to face. And so a lot of the the the, the repertoire, the package of contention, the very specific recipe of rebellion that people reach for is one that has become kind of globally hegemonic because we all live on the same internet. And so people are grabbing that thing and so often the book is really about, I think, the unexpected success of a particular repertoire of contention. And then what happens when it accidentally or unexpectedly gets way, way more people on the streets than anybody had ever imagined. Um, I was talking to Cedric Johnson. I don't know if you're familiar with mm -hmm. uh, Professor Cedric Johnson. We were talking mm -hmm. about your book. Neither one of us had, had read it at the time, um, but he wrote... Uh, I don't know if you read his after black lives matter or the Panthers can't save us now. Um, but, but books kind of about the domestic protests and what ended up happening and how those get co-opted so and so on. In your book, you talk about the media ecosystem we exist in and how it affects the way we look at protests, how it affects the way we understand uh, what protest is and mass action with social media being the dominant form of media. Most people digest is the Instagrammable moment infiltrating movements and turning mass action into more of a collective catharsis? So turning it into a collective catharsis, I think is, I think that collective catharsis has always been there. 
-hmm. I think that there are a lot of things that protests do. Mm -hmm. um, protests, I think, are fundamentally a communicative action. They're like that's it's right there in the word, especially in Spanish or Portuguese. They're you know manifestations or demonstrations. You're trying to send a message to somebody. So it's fundamentally communicative actions, but also they're about recognizing a shared humanity with other people that are trying to build the same kind of world that you are. And, and this kind of the, the, the effect on the, the participant is often really important. And, 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 you know, that can be a really important thing and part of a larger story of movement building or even successful revolution. What is new compared to a lot of the cathartic revolutionary, sorry, the cathartic mass protest movements of the 20th century or like 2003, like, you know, I protested against the war in Iraq and Berkeley in 2003. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, I felt like I was doing something that felt very meaningful, mm -hmm. but the government just ignored it. You know, the mm -hmm. George Bush administration decided that he knew about the anti-war minority and he decided, mm -hmm. you know, no, no matter how noisy we were, he decided he didn't care. What's really strange about the 2010s is when it actually works. Mm -hmm. um, and often, so the cases that I choose to analyze in my book, I, I tell 13 stories, but 10 of them really, I think, count as the particular type of phenomenon that I'm analyzing. In order to be included, I don't. it's not that I agree with them. They're all over the map ideologically. It's that they actually get so big that they uh, overthrow or fundamentally destabilize existing governments. Mm -hmm. And I think in any case, when that happens, you have to have multiple causality. There's always many, many reasons that a protest can, can get so many people on the streets that it actually overthrows a government or, or fundamentally destabilizes one. And I think that social media is one of the things that gets you over the line. It's one of the things that gets quite a lot of people into the streets. And in a lot of the cases that I analyze, mm -hmm. it is a shocking image of police repression that goes viral. And it's usually police repression against somebody that is considered innocent mm -hmm. compared to the usual type, like, you know, mm -hmm. in Brazil, if they had just cracked, like cracked the heads of the punks and anarchists and shot up the favelas, middle-class Brazil ignores that, but the, mm -hmm. the protest hits, um, you know, photogenic white journalists in the mainstream journalism, in the mainstream media. So I think that what social media contributes to, along with a lot, along with structural factor, factors, along with the, the, the 2008 crisis, is making it easier for a whole lot of people to get into the streets all at once. But then often, in the decade as i analyze it at least or around the particular phenomenon that i choose to build the story that cocktail social media being one of the ingredients creates a situation that the protest doesn't know how to deal with cannot 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 respond to they cannot either form a new government which would be like properly a revolutionary movement or even often to elaborate a set of demands that would allow ruling elites to be like okay you want you asked for A, B, C, D, and E. I'll give you A, B, C. And then the, the streets say, okay, we'll take A, B, C. Uh, but we're, we've raised consciousness about D and we're going to go back and rebuild. Often there's just like this strange. I, I thought that was so, sorry to sorry to stop you. I, Please, I was, was, I was, so I was close to done. I was done. I, was, I thought that was such an important part of your book when you bring that up, that when you have like the kind of more traditional communist Marxist Leninist party, um, coming in and making the negotiations and you have the anarchists going, see, this is what happens. They, they, uh, just work with power and we're not getting what we want. Um, is that the problem when you have 
the horizontal movements that you can't take the small victories and try to build from there. You're constantly, no, if we don't get what we want exactly the way we want it, then tear it all down. So when a movement is fully horizontal, so in the book, I, I try to distinguish between horizontalist movements, like the group in Brazil that really believe that this is the best form mm-hmm. of organizing a social movement, or just concrete horizontality, which mm-hmm. is often what you got in other cases where they would have maybe perhaps liked to have a, a, a labor union or a communist party that was strong enough to sort of be at the front, but they just didn't. Like in Egypt, they just didn't. Like civil society had been decimated under the dictatorship. Yeah. So I think you know, as a mental experiment, well, no, maybe not a mental experiment. When you have near, near complete horizontality, when there is, um, when it is really, really quite difficult for anybody to speak for the movement in any credible way, like people will will make bids to speak for the movement, but like there's no, if you are, so for example, in Brazil, Dilma Rousseff sits in her office. Dilma Rousseff has come up as a dissident. She would love to give the streets what they want. She thinks that they're asking for basically things that she wants to. Mm-hmm. But she can't figure out what is the things that they are asking for that if she were to deliver, mm-hmm. that would credibly lead to some kind of a victory that everybody could go home. You know, okay, I gave you what you want. So she like spends her days studying the television screen in her office. Turn, she turns off the sound because she doesn't want to be influenced by people like me that are telling her what's happening on the streets. <laughs> she turns off the the sound to study the signs in the streets. And she kind of comes up with her own idea of what it is. And then, and, and, and then at the same time, in the streets, you have these competing forces to supply actually what the demands are. And no, there is no way, there, no one wins. Mm-hmm. No one wins the narrative, the battle over the narrative. I mean, in the book, like, this is like a cute story that uh, I know quite well because I, I end up tracking down the guy that made it. One guy just put on a V for Vendetta mask in Brazil, mm-hmm. made a video on YouTube, mm-hmm. said, anonymous, I'm anonymous. These are the five demands. And everybody kind of thought it like it, it took off. And I found the guy later. I was like, oh, well, how did anonymous decide on these demands? Like, no, I just made them up. I got them from Facebook. So, <laughs> damn. <laughs> And he didn't even know that was weird. Like to him, he's like, yeah, there's no such thing as anonymous. Like, you know, I was just, you know, and his thing went viral. Uh, and something similar happens in, in, in Hong Kong. Like if we burn is a post that is made by one guy outside of the country that it, that probably has different political views and goals than the majority of Hong Kongers. But he makes a post on a Reddit, like their version of Reddit, essentially, with a, a GIF or a JPEG, I forget. Uh, from Hunger Games, and that goes viral. It gets like a million upvotes, and then people are standing in the streets saying, if we burn, you burn with us. And he comes to the, the conclusion later, he's like, oh, well, that actually isn't true in the case of Beijing. Like, Hong Kong can just burn, and then they just wait, which is what happened. So when you have concrete or, like, near-complete horizontality, where everybody's in, like, you know, at the extreme end of this, um, uh, uh, like, spectrum, which you got pretty close to in June 2013. Everybody in on the streets is on the street as an individual with their own ideas as to what the thing is about and with their own ideas as to what the government should do. It becomes not only very hard to like form a new government if you accidentally or intentionally overthrow the, the, the existing government, because how is like a protest of individuals with different ideas 
about the future, going to form a new government. You also have a very hard time elaborating the demands like a union would in a union organization or like civil rights organizations in the 50s and 60s would have um, in a way that allows the, the state to believe, OK, well, if I give them ABC, then they're going to go home because I have no idea if they're actually going to give them go home if I give them ABC. So it's not in anyone's interest. It's not in my interest as the as the ruling party to give them A, B, or C. Tucson, do you want to follow up? With the next question? Sure. Okay. Um, in this end of history moment, is it hard for Western leftists to imagine an alternative to capitalism when under when and understand the long game? So many people quote Lenin, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Mm -hmm. If weeks and decades don't happen, what usually happens to the movement in question? So if so part one of the question is if if it's hard for the Western left to imagine what what is what what could actually come after capitalism, is that right? Yeah. yeah. I think so I, I, I think that I think that we're pretty good at imagining. I think that we are um, the the Western left, the first world left, is not worse than the global South left than at 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 theorizing possible futures or ways that things can go poorly. But what a lot of these 225, 250 interviewees told me at the end of the book is that for the Western left, it's not urgent. They're kind of, you know, compared to us, at least. So this is what some, you know, the, the most famous quotes um, came from Egyptians. Like, for us, if we lose, all my friends die or go to jail. If we are stuck with this dictatorship, like in, in right now in Cairo, mm -hmm. you can't even talk about politics in a coffee shop without going being arrested. Or in Brazil, you know, the Bolsonaro government, and I said, this is what I saw in front of my house. When Bolsonaro gets power, people are starving and people are dying in front of my house, right? And so I think that what uh, the difference between the horizon or imagination of struggle between, uh, you know, like on both sides of this very, you know, I think it's a, a coherent line. I think it's a good line to maintain, but it's kind of a, uh, a, um, a fuzzy line between global north and global south is that um if nothing happens you know if no weeks come if no month if no if no uh if if if, if decades just happen keep coming without anything happening mm -hmm. in you know the part of suburban california where i grew up that's kind of okay it's boring you're alienated uh you're watching labor you know uh, 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 you're watching labor be decimated or, or, or becoming more precarious but you can kind of hold on and, and, and wait for the next um, um, rupture, at least in comparison to, you know, uh, Mozambique or, or Brazil or Egypt, where um, they often don't need to imagine something very otherworldly and, and, and uh, utopian. They know what they need right now. They just, they just need this particular repression to stop or they just need food tomorrow or they need health care right now. So I think that that. Um, that is a division which I think is that I come down to seeing slightly more important. Cool. Um, to sort of piggyback on that one um, and dealing with that quote, 
Uh, you also mentioned right after you mentioned that quote, but in cities in the 21st century, things move even more quickly than that. What do you think mm -hmm. is causing the speed up worldwide? Yeah, mediatization. So I, I put myself in this book, even though I don't really want to be in my books, I don't really want to be in my work. I, I'm, more, I'm in this book more than I want to be because I think media plays a bigger role in this story than I wish it did. Like my mm. deep instincts, um, my deep political instincts are to look at you know, structure and material conditions and long-term shifts in, in, in the deep, more invisible um, 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 substructures of society. But in this particular case, and again, just to be clear, this is, it is a book really about a built around a specific phenomenon, which is this particular package of tactics works better than expected. To tell that story, there's quite a lot of media in it. It's quite a lot of mediatization. It's quite, like, I don't think you can really explain why Brazil goes the way it does without people in the media mm -hmm. accidentally or in a, in a subconscious way reconfiguring. Not only the interpretation of June 2013, does not just change the way that people in you know the United States and China understand what's happening on the streets. It changes what's happening on the streets. And so, and this thing, you know, the, this process, that this weird back and forth that happens between me and Gezi Park um, in June 2013 would not happen without technology and intense mediatization of our lives. And in, in some ways, it's really cool. It's, right. I think it is something that can be celebrated and built upon um, for movements that want to work on on creating global solidarity links. But there was this other strange slippage where you got the copying of tactics that you had seen somewhere else because it looked great there or because it got good media representation somewhere else or because you started doing it in your country and then you immediately got a positive feedback loop. Like you realize, and you know, mm -hmm. like I'm I'm not trying to call people out because I'm, I'm, I, I recognized that I was starting to be guilty of this myself in June 2013. You start to realize that if I do this thing or say this thing, I get a thousand retweets instead of two. And so like this, you have, a, you have like an immediate feedback loop with mediatization in the largest sense of, uh, of interaction with, with like um, both social and traditional media. I think that that's what I was, I what I was trying to ask in the earlier question about the Instagrammable moment about. Yeah. Um, just being there, whatever there means, makes you some sort of radical. Yeah. In, in the new sense of radical, like you just have to kind of show up to things, whether these things have a purpose or not. And if you're there, then you're radical. There's an ecosystem for radicals in the in the spaces we exist in on the internet. And you can become a bit of a celebrity uh, in that space. So you don't even need corporate co-optation at that point. It's just the yeah, that's really no, that's really interesting. Like, um, yeah, you've done you've pre-co-opted yourself, right? Like you've uh, <laughs> well, that's that's that book I sent you that I the little mini yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it looks really yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, that was kind of my my thing when I was and you talk about the situationists as well in your book, so that's why I sent that to you. I was like, oh wow, two people that came to the same conclusion about the Sex Pistols. And I find them interesting because in Malcolm McLaren, you have this guy that is a leftist for all intents and purposes and has a way that he wants to bring about the fall of capitalism 
whether or not it's quirky, whether or not it's really going to work. He gets the spectacle part right, you know? <laughs> and you talk about it with the New York Dolls. We're going to put a hammer and sickle behind the New York Dolls who are already a fringe act. And that didn't work. Right? No, people did not like that. Did uh, not like that. But... Sylvain Sylvain says in the, in the really memorably, in the United <laughs> States, you can be gay or a drug addict. You can't be a communist. Uh, and that, that you crossed the line. That crossed the line for them. And what I found interesting with the Sex Pistols, and again, with, the, with studying a little, a little bit about the Situationists, is that he goes, okay, we're going to go the anarchist route with these guys. Right. And that just resonates right. so hard in the Western world that it kind of becomes the foundation for what we look at as punk music. And the animus that I get from people that actually listen to a little bit of what I have to say is, that wasn't the goal of everybody involved. Some people are at best anti-over-consumerists. Maybe they were anti-conservative mm -hmm. and conservative in that, like, we don't like the jocks kind of way of the 80s, right? And a lot of them wanted the planes that Led Zeppelin had. They wanted the laser light show. They wanted the free gear. They wanted the women after the shows. There was nothing that they <laughs> wanted that was antithetical to their rock star counterparts. And it almost feels similar in in these circles, especially when you – well, I don't want to go on for too long. <laughs> Get myself in trouble. Well, which, what do you <laughs> – well, you, you see the same thing kind of in BLM. Oh. You know, um, where th there's a. No one likes seeing anybody get murdered by law enforcement. No one. Um, there's a small group of people that probably think it's cool, but ultimately, children getting harmed. Innocent people getting killed. Everybody goes out in mass and they hate it, right? And that movement to me started a conversation. I think there's something to it from that standpoint. But what was the end goal and who really wins? Hmm. In 2020 hundreds of millions of dollars gets dumped into black capitalism all in the name of George Floyd. A lot of these programs, a lot of these grants people got was never going to help out George Floyd. It wasn't for him, but his death was the catalyst for a large segment of the bourgeois population to get set asides. Nixon was a proponent of black capitalism. You know what I mean? So when you see some of these, these big movements and everybody gets on social media and they're saying all the right things, this is wrong, this is bad. Of course this is wrong, this is bad. This is horrible to see. Who likes watching snuff films on the news? I hate it. I hate it. I lived in it. I lived in West Oakland. You know, you know the East Bay. I lived on Wood Street in a warehouse across from the encampment. Um, so I saw I saw daily people in around the garbage on fire like a Mad Max movie cooking 
and burning things they shouldn't be burning. We're all inhaling just toxic air. Um, it sucks. But who kind of wins at the end of the day? Cities burned in 2020. Who who is victorious? What is what is moving forward? What are we what are we talking about right now? Moving forward, we're going into 2024, and we're talking about larger police budgets. More people that aren't even homeowners are complaining about property crime like it's the 90s, and you're talking about murders and crack. It isn't the same thing at all. And everybody's calling for heavier sentences for property crime. That's my frustration with a lot of what happened domestically 2020 Mm. is the, is the Mark Fisher calls it the ideological blackmail co-optation and capitalist realism. Mm. I don't know. So that, (laughs) yeah, no, there was, there's three things that I was like, uh, there was, I I started like thinking of all the things that I wanted to respond to, but, uh, maybe I can go back in order. Cause, um, I think there's a way that the first, the old question, maybe I didn't answer that directly hmm. about Instagram, like uh, the Instagram post uh, is maybe related to that second uh, history of punk music. Mm-hmm. Um, Asif Bayat, who I quote at the end of the book, he's an Iranian American scholar looking really closely and like, you know, carefully and sympathetically at the the uprisings in North Africa, so-called Arab Spring, he thinks, well, you know, not only did neoliberal structures, not only did neoliberal economics decimate these societies, it also reshaped subjectivity in a way in which the neoliberalized North African subject, Egyptian Mm -hmm. um, middle-class person pointing into the square had a hard time not necessarily imagining what they wanting what they wanted but imagining what it takes to do a revolution imagining they have a hard time um 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 reconstructing or arriving at the properly collective action that is needed to push things over the line um and there's a long quote i could find if you like it's it's, it's quite powerful about the ways that neoliberal subjectivity makes it difficult for us for 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 us to not only recognize the structures that are oppressing us but to collect you know a, a effectively push back against them and like weirdly from like a you know much less radical direction naomi klein like talked you know she she like kind of looked at the same thing in the in like the same years and she's like oh yeah well you know we're all all we're really do like personal branding has been so deeply ingrained mm-hmm. into the way that yeah. we're supposed to live our lives is that we don't even really recognize anymore that we are we are thinking the first yeah, thinking first about our individual projection mm-hmm. and then only distantly second or third, if ever, about the co- kind of collective struggle which is required to be our enemies. Because our enemies are are, are organized. Our enemies are uh, uh, operating as a class. And so to try to make that bridge from the first thing to the second thing in like the history of punk rock, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of Southern California in the 90s. I grew up more, you know, as individualized, you know, absolutely materially taken care of in a incredibly individualized anatomized um type of living like wait like you know you're in a you got to drive everywhere mm-hmm. 
And then it was like for better or worse. And, you know, and I think it's neither for better or worse. It's just like the way, you know, you can't, you can't snap your fingers and change the way that this works. I often got my first, like the first time that I heard about like more complex political ideas other than just like the Democrats and Republicans was <laughs> through music, right? Was mm -hmm. through either punk music or through, I remember like LA Weekly being a, like a big part mm -hmm. of my political awakening because yeah. yeah. I would go to the Mexican restaurant with my parents on, you know, every Friday night or whatever. And I would grab the LA Weekly and there would these be people, these people talking about these bands or these movements that, that I had never had, you know, I would have never known about. Mm -hmm living in the suburbs. And then you like, you know, you read about them and you read about the ideas that they're into. And then like that gets you to finally maybe like reconnects this very atomized neoliberalized subject that I was as 14 years old with this body of like thought of like political philosophy or, or theory, or just like the body of, 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 of the humanities going back to whatever Greece. And this is what a lot of the Brazilians said. I mean, they said this quite explicitly 20 years ago now when you say it, people kind of think that maybe you're like trying to be um you're trying to be slightly insulting but they're very proud of this in the early 2000s is that oh there was no anarchism in brazil until punk brought it back like there was anarchists in brazil like in like the early early 20th century but then they all reorganized into like they were from italy they all reorganized into the, the brazilian communist party and then like the rebirth of anarchism or the like the way that we decided that we needed to learn about anarchism was that we were pretending we were anarchists because we were in bands that were like supposed to be a punk anarcho-punk and then we like decided to actually go get the books and figure it out so like i think that it is um symptomatic of like this broader very very individualized consumer society that we live in that it was for better or worse like often like the consequence of malcolm mclaren's essential kind of like basic like stunt you know mm -hmm. it's just a spectacle but mm -hmm. like it is a marketing you know as much as it is yeah. a spec, you know also a marketing tactic yeah. that this one particular strand of political thought gets reintroduced especially in the first world or the the sections of Brazilian society where they're like very much listening to, to music from California and things. And of course, if this is the structure of the global, global media um, environment, then only the, like, at least for that first, if the, you know, the first steps on the bridge, the first thing that you're going to identify as a way, a path out of in the, the sort of wilderness intellectually that you're in are always going to be things that kind of more or less are tolerable to mm -hmm. consumer culture to like, mm -hmm to rec you know there you can imagine you know and not only just the hammer and sickle but you can imagine other kind of radical messages that malcolm mclaren could have chosen that would not really have gotten you know people would have not put up with it right but it just happened to be that one that really served as a um i mean he brings the sticker back well does he put it on sid vicious or sid vicious just decides to wear it johnny rotten wore one as well i i think those those dudes were just so f everything that yeah, yeah yeah taboo and that is kind of what you end up getting you know the culture of deconstruction which i call the culture of no that's ultimately what you get you get a lot of people that are just like no yeah and granted there are people that come after the fact like i like propaganda mm -hmm. they seem like righteous dudes but they don't have the cultural significance of the sex pistols black flag bad religion you know insert very large punk band here there's a lot of punk bands that may have good politics but they're so small mm -hmm. and just they're not designed to be any bigger than you know their small little milieu
And I think that what you just said, there's an overlap between what you just said, the politics of no, because like in this in this book, lip, lipstick braces, lip, lipstick traces, which is like probably the most serious attempt to trace punks um, ideology back to situation, international and Dadaism. He does talk about like the negate, like the power of negation, like mm -hmm. the ways in which the negation of what is presently existing allows for the imagining of something different and allows it to denaturalize, um, you know, uh, uh, allows it to make it clear that what appears to be natural is not really natural, or whatever. Like the politics of negation um, serve a function in this kind of very art school way. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing against art school, but this is what Malcolm McLaren comes from. Mm -hmm. But this idea of saying no, no, no to everything, 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 and maybe isn't. Um, I think there's an overlap between that attitude and what ends up happening in an accidental way in these mass protest movements when there comes to a moment when actually mm -hmm. someone's trying to give you. Someone's trying to <laughs> someone's trying to give you what you you know it seems that you you're asking for, but there's this insistence on negation forever, and this is what really causes this split between the mayor of Sao Paulo, Fernando Haddad, and the original punks and anarchists is that Haddad believes that he truly believes that the government is set up to listen to people like these kids. He mm -hmm. truly believes that his government is responsive to their demands. But they act as if they don't. They they want nothing to do with that process of mediation. They they want to negate the state as it exists, and then that will somehow, you know, cause an uprising, which will somehow be good. But actually, the uprising came, and it wasn't what they wanted at all. And and they ended up in this strange battle where nobody knew really exactly what they were supposed to be doing. It's it's so sad because that kind of is how I felt about heavy music, and the left the current iteration of maybe the western left will say is that there's so much no saying there's not a lot of well what do we want how do we get people into the movement if all we're saying what we don't like and uh, yeah yeah the, the the culture of deconstruction and the culture of authenticity those two things definitely work uh against you to uh, to build any real real movement yeah everyone's authentic you know everyone's authentic right every single human being that's the thing like it's like uh <laughs> The, you know, the people, you know, like, well, everyone's the people, but include, you know, the, the turns out that the people included the far right in Brazil, the, the people, you know, mm -hmm. and everyone's authentic. Um, but yeah, that the idea of constantly, this is, I think, a quite a North American thing. And um, the idea that the more radical you are, the more that you distance yourself from the state uh, in, in every case, because in Brazil, I mean, I, this is my next thing I'm working on, so I'm thinking about this all the time. But I spent the summer with Brazil's Landless Workers Movement, which is a very radical group that pushes for, I mean, ultimately they would love a socialist revolution, but they also want, but they really, their, their, their reason for existing is to push for radical land reform, distributing land from uh, feudal or large landowners to um, regular Brazilians. And they have like, you know, in the long term, their vision is very radical. They read Lenin, they read Mao, they're very good friends with the Cubans. They bring in social movements from all over the world. But day to day, they have no problem extracting mm. concessions from the state. When they can get something, when they can get the local education commissioner to agree to provide funding and uh, 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 like state infrastructure to their the school that they've built, they will take that. They extract that. And by extracting that, they don't stop they don't give up on their long-term radical goals. They don't become the local administration, but they're very, they have no problems whatsoever with getting something now. And then not only that act of getting something now 
does not mean you stop. It is actually used to get people into the movement because now you're able to give working class Brazilians like, mm -hmm. look, here's money, here's food. Being part of this movement not only is a long term strategy, a long term attempt to revolutionize Brazilian and ultimately all of South American society. But right now we're putting food on your table. Um, and I found anyways, that, that's what I've been thinking about because I spent the summer with them. But I was often in the and I grew up with this sort of deep assumption myself growing up, you know, very individualized, atomized in the 90s listening to bands in suburban California, the idea that the more radical you were, the, the more that you just never had anything to do with the, the existing world. Uh, <laughs> That's the movies we saw. I mean, look, I'm assuming we're around the same age. I might be a little older than you in 46. Um, no, I'm, yeah, no, 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 you're not. Um, you know, that was, well, how, hold on. How old did you say you were? Sorry. 40, 46. Oh, yeah, you are a little bit older than me. Sorry, you said 36. Yeah. Uh, and th those were the, the outcast. That's supposed to be a leftist is alone. The punk music turns into F you mom, right? I it's think the, really yeah, I mean, that's really, I think it's a lot of it was about, right? I mean, it's made for, the, think about this. It was, it's made for, it's, you know, pop music is sold to teenagers. That's the biggest market. And teenagers are having a really tough time. You know, being a teenager is shit. You know, you're kind of, you are kind of mad at everyone when you're yeah. a teenager for good reason. And listening to 40 year old men say F you mom is one thing. But yeah, if you think about the 90. And right, if you think about the warp tour and oh, if you think about the '90s and deregulation financially, and this explosion of suburbs, um, you also get an explosion of malls. Yeah. You get an explosion of cheap credit. Right. And you get an explosion of something that we never really had in the United States, which is the hell of festivals. Yeah. You get two Woodstocks in the '90s. You get Lollapalooza traveling tour right. in the 90s and so much other stuff. Right? Lilith Fair. Too. Lilith. Oh, there you go. We'll let the ladies do it, too. The ladies can do it. <laughs> and, you know, whether we like it or not, those are all consumer products, right? Those just, are like all, punk, just like and, punk and, music and was, just like the Sex Pistols were. And now we can look like punk. We can look like Sex Pistols. We can have lip. Remember when you're probably old enough to remember if you had. Uh, a facial piercing. Oh yeah, that was wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You didn't have a regular job. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you had a facial piercing. You either went to prison. You were into some weird sex stuff. You yeah. were a real deal out. So you were like one of those like hobo kids. Yeah. Now in 1994, 95, 96, if you don't have an eyebrow piercing, you just ain't cool, brother. Yeah. And that's all and in the suburbs. You're getting it done at the mall. And this is a thing that comes up also, I think, in the the mass protests in the moment of unexpected success. This is actually something I'm stealing. I'm not stealing, but this came out of because both Alex and I, Alex from Bunga, yeah, uh, uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga, we're both Sao Paulo based most of the time. Um, if you make demands upon a ruling class, if you present a bunch of demands in a moment where you even maybe have leverage, you've shut down the city, you're making things very difficult, you're making it difficult to reproduce capitalism in a given nation. If you make a bunch of demands and some of them are purely cultural and some of them actually require taking money away from elites, they're gonna give you the cultural ones. They're, that's fine, they don't care. They can make it, they can change the rules where it's okay to have, where it's okay to have uh, face piercings. If you're actually asking for a restructuring of the economy, now mm. you're going to get actual opposition. Now you're going to actually have to go to war with a class that is itself organized 
and acting collectively always. Like this is a Mark Fisher thing says, uh, just because you, you you quoted him earlier. The ruling class is already organized. The ruling class is already doing class war at all times. So if you ask for cult easy to deliver cultural shifts mm -hmm. and material mm -hmm. gains, you're going to get the cultural stuff. And this happens a lot. This happens a lot in the 2010s where in the moments when the government wants to appear like they're giving the streets what they want because they want to appear like they are the inter the they are responding to the people that they are the they are the they, they are the answer to the question at, being asked by the streets um you often get a a, a a cultural concession which might matter to some people even as it alienates other people i think in, in ukraine i think you get a you do get a a cultural or a, a, a shift on the question of nationalism, but you don't get any restructuring of the economy that many, many people would have liked. Um, because it doesn't cost anybody, it doesn't cost anybody anything to let you to work at Starbucks with a face person. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> to, to, my mouth just exploded, so I'm going to need you to be the producer person that makes people big and small. Okay. That didn't sound right. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yes. And hopefully my computer will allow me to do just that. Yeah, you can you can make Vin Vincent like regular size, right? I hope so. It takes a lot of C a lot of CPU. Oh my god. To run restream for me. Can you ask the 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 next question that you wrote so eloquently while I try to put my mouse back together? Okay. It exploded. Um, so piggybacking on the piggyback of the Lenin quote, mm -hmm. yeah, um, people have an idea of revolution being quick, yet at this moment, although things are moving fast, I don't sense that revolution is around the corner. So that's a contradiction I see. Mm -hmm. And those two ideas go together. Is that just because I'm in the U.S.? Where's our revolution, Vincent? Okay, where's our revolution? I think is a question I know more quickly how to answer. When you say that it, you think that what was the 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 claim that revolution is supposed to be quick? Can you explain that a little bit? People have an idea that revolution should be quick. Um, they don't see it as being slow. I think people yeah. see it as being quick and hopefully not violent. Yeah. So I think. Quick is going to be wrong, sort of by definition. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not violent. I also hope so. But here, but ha what happens? So um, often it becomes violent. Um, yeah. Whether or not you're interested in, in in that happening, and this is this is something that became. So I'll start. I'll go first at once. If you actually believe, so there's different. You know, what, what's a revolution? There's there's different definitions as to what it is. If if you believe that it's simply just a rupture like a big, big break, mm -hmm. and just the break itself is a revolution, then um, then I guess it can be considered quick. But if you, but I mean, but then I, what actually happens in the real world is that there's always the next day after the break. So the way that the world, the world, the way that life is lived after the, the day of the, the light, the lightning bolt, which is usually not even how it works. It's often kind of a Hollywood reception, but even if there is a, a lightning bolt, what really matters is the way that life is lived afterwards mm -hmm. and the restructuring of society in a way that actually changes life, hopefully improving it, 
I think that definitionally is going to take a while. And I think that that process is longer, the more complex the society is. So, you know, mm -hmm. back in the age of the medieval town square uh, that was described in the beginning of the book, you might just, you know, the king gets killed and then there's a new order and they change the rules and that, you know, that doesn't take very long. I think that the actual process of what would truly be called social revolution in the 21st century is going to take a while. So then, which is related to part two, which is that historically revolution means counter-revolutionary uh, mm -hmm. backlash. There is a, if you are actually taking privileges away from somebody or, or, or making somebody believe that they are losing their privileges, there's a counter-revolution. And so this is a thing that was tragic and shocking and horrifying in much of what uh, uh, was understood initially as the Arab Spring, which is that this particular form of contention, the apparently spontaneous, leaderless, social media-driven or digitally coordinated, horizontally structured mass protest in the streets of, you know, in Tahrir Square, was not nonviolent because they, you know, on, on the night of December, on January 20th, they burned down 90 police stations. But it was not, it was about just, it was about creating, uh, dislodging the existing government. And then throughout the rest of the North Africa and, and uh, the Middle East, what you often saw is that when the rupture, you know, when the people did create the rupture, when there was a, a power vacuum created, or a, a, a national system was destabilized, often the answer was just imperialist violence. That was someone in the neighborhood, the biggest, baddest guy around, just came and crushed you um, because they didn't like the way that things were going. This is, you know, so a lot of people that say, you know, that I, whose, whose accounts I find very credible, say that the so-called Arab Spring, its fate was written on the wall when two things happened. Number one, when NATO mm. used some legitimate concerns of, of course, you know, Gaddafi, of course, uh, 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 there were reasons to, com to, to be upset with the way that he ran Libya, but NATO using those, the legitimate concerns of Libyans as an excuse to launch a regime change operation. After that, there's no more. After that, it's pretty clear that this particular form is not going to be um, effective. Uh, if, 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 if NATO is coming in to just to, to decide the way that your uprising goes, then it's not going to be decided in a mass protest. And then in Bahrain, um, Saudi Arabia, of course, you know, very close U.S. ally in the region since the Cold War, uh, just drives over the bridge and crushes the uprising in Bahrain, uh, crushes a very, very uh, an uprising which is like asking for basic rights for the Shia for the Shia majority, and the world just kind of goes, oh well, that's fine. And so <laughs> the violence often comes to you. Um, mm. that's, that, that was a lesson that a lot of people in the early 20th century thought was axiomatic. You know, you may not be interested in war, war is interested in you. I'm, you know, changing the context a little bit. Um, so that is one thing though, I think that is different. You asked about the, 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 the United States. This book is not about any of the uprisings that happened in the United States. And one of the things that I do think that is different about, um, Brazil or Libya or Mozambique, um, from the United States is by definition, a mass protest event or uprising in the United States cannot be responded 
to buy a more powerful country. There is no more powerful country. But everyone in South America knows that you actually have to play this insane game. This has been the way that things have gone for 100 years. You have to play this insane game of achieving progress, but not so much that you you provoke the United States into carrying out a coup or an invasion. Um, so I think that that was something that was forgotten, even though it was established, pretty well established knowledge in long revolutionary history in the 20th century. Um, in this era that we all kind of thought, so again, this is Berlin, the Berlin Wall idea, which is an, an idea that was handed to us, which is which is very misleading that things just got better for everyone in the post-communist world. Um, that's not actually what happened. But the idea that, oh, people came to the streets of East Berlin, David Hasselhoff uh, sang a song, happy, everyone's happy after, uh, ever after, that the belief in that kind of, I mean, almost magical narrative is comes crashing up against a, of the reality of an imperialist global system, the reality of lots of armies mm-hmm. that are that are constituted precisely to stop configurations of power and uh, changing in ways that they don't want them to. It's it's interesting. We were we were talking. There's always someone because the name of the show, right? There's always someone that you know wants a violent revolution tomorrow. Um, and a friend said once, okay, <laughs> he said, let's say you take a city block. Let's say you take a city block. What are you going to do when they shut off the water? How are you going to treat your wounded? What are you going to do when they shut off the power? What are you going to do when they shut off the internet? Cry. <laughs> it's really that yeah, internet. I mean, that, again, this all this theorizing happened back with Carlos Marighella and Black Panthers, the idea of, a, of yeah. urban guerrilla warfare. Turns out urban guerrilla warfare is really quite difficult to do. It's see, very, I, very I, difficult I, to do. Yeah, Carlos Marighella, Carlos Marighella, great. You know, watch the movie about him, like a hero, a martyr of, you know, Brazilian democracy, but uh, or like the Brazilian resistance to the dictatorship. But like a, a grill, urban guerrilla warfare. Is very very difficult, especially in the advanced capitalist first world. So, like, I just realized now I didn't answer the, the third party of your question, like, where's the revolution? Where's our revolution? Um, I've seen some people come at this book before they read it, thinking that it is somehow at the end going, or you know, along the way, going to provide some kind of a program for uh, first mm-hmm. world revolution, like how to do revolution in the United States uh, tomorrow. Uh, that's not what it is at all. It is it is a it is a history of um, the world built around a very specific phenomenon that has become uh, important in many countries in that decade, especially in the global South. But along the way, if you want to try to answer that question while reading the book, you can see where there's sort of, let's say, weak spots in the global system or, or, or places where things are interesting. I think Egypt is really interesting. I think Egypt, the case of Egypt 2011 to 2013 was really is really fascinating because you could really see it going a different way. Mm. Um, I think that South-South cooperation, you know, and again, what's a revolution? South-South cooperation, if effective, if you had, you know, the kind of thing that Lula wants to do, which is like, to, like it's very, very difficult, but to use South-South cooperation to restructure the global system in a way which allows the formerly colonized peoples to take their rightful place as equals along the first world. Is that a revolution at the global scale? I mean, is that a revolution? Um, I don't know if you would call it a revolution, but I think it's 
you know, it would be a fantastic outcome for a lot of people that don't have food or, mm -hmm. or um, uh, medicine right now. But yeah, I mean, I think I think Egypt. I don't know. I I I I uh, I, I, I like the one that I I would love to rerun in my head is Egypt. And the one, air, you know, and Egypt is also a, a very very important country. The you know by far the most po populous Arab country, uh, right on the border with Israel. A population that is vigorously and uncompromisingly opposed to what the way that Israel is acting right now, but yet is governed by somebody that must be in some kind of a collaboration with yeah. Israel and the United States. So the possibility of what a democratic Egypt would mean, even if you don't have like the revolution that establishes, you know, uh, 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 libertarian communism tomorrow or, or that establishes like utopia tomorrow, just even like, a, like so like a a, 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 re, a restructuring of Egypt in a way that in which the government would actually have to demands to the to have to respond to the demands of the most populous Arab country would mean a lot for a lot of people so uh so I think that along the way in the book you could see like I what I found interesting is to hear from readers the ways that they all different people like different different people came like grabbed different parts of it um, came came to different conclusions, different 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 stories from around the world jumped out to different people, and I think that that's like the that's the point. That's why I decided to write like a global history, which is really structured as a story, rather than a book of like you should do this. Here's my argument, because I, as you said, I interviewed 225 people. It would be quite like disingenuous and unfair to them to be like this is what I think if if I'm trying to let their story, <laughs> yeah. if I'm trying to center their, you know. Um, struggles and sacrifices and the things that they that they've took took away from it. You're like, fuck you, Serge. I ran for class president. I got homework banned on Thursdays, motherfucker. <laughs> uh do we have you for a few more minutes, Vincent? Do we have a, uh, As you like. Well, I mean, look, this is the Saturday free show. So uh Toussaint Question number nine, which I know you wrote, is so beautiful. Did you want to ask that one? Okay. Question number nine, which you know I wrote. Um, we know the MLK quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends towards justice. Based on your studies of the 2010s, what do you say to that? Is this just another example of prefiguration? So... That one is really interesting because Obama loved to say it. Um, <laughs> and what I think that is an, a, a, a more interesting, like, I don't know. I quote a different uh, passage from Martin Luther King um, in the book in his letter from Birmingham jail because he, let me just read it. Mm -hmm. uh, Back in the 60s, Martin Luther King had criticized the taking aim at the white liberals who seemed to believe that th things would simply improve on their own. He attacked the, quote, strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. And that is like a bit of, you know, that's a little bit of prefiguration in my mm -hmm. book, because what, what you see in many, many cases that it is possible for things to go quote unquote backwards for things to get worse. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, so finishing the quote, we must come to see that human progress never rolls on 
no, never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes to the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. Um, and I think that the, uh, the distinction he makes between his movement there and white liberals is quite interesting mm -hmm. because if you are from, if you grew up in the ideological milieu that I did, if you were a particular type of American, if you grew up, if you, for a particular class of first world, um, subject, like the, the, the like privileged subject in, in, especially in the United States, it is kind of true that everything just got better for 250 years. Like the, like the, the arc, like things for white middle class and, and ruling class Americans in a way, which is very strange in the history of like global society really did just like get better seemingly on their own for 250 years. Now, if you take a big step back, that's not how things work for most people. Most of the time, other parts of the world have very different experiences of, of, of historical, the arc of history. But I kind of did grow up sort of thinking, I sort of, if I like interrogate what I believed when I was 14, I probably did believe that things just get better. And, you know, you can see this kind of belief popping up in like online discourse. Like if you think about the, the phrase, like, oh, uh, it's, it's, it's 2023 and this is still happening, right? As if, as if the size of that number somehow indicated how good things were supposed to be, right? <laughs> Just because it's bigger than the last number means that we're supposed to be living in a world which is more liberal or feminist or anything, whatever it is that you are talking about. And so I think that that was an assumption that was deeply held and important to a lot of these mass protest events. They kind of just, there was just this assumption that yeah, if you get everyone on the streets, yeah. then you're making history move forward and the history only moves forward. It doesn't move backward. But if you, if you step outside of the, you know, the experiences of the United States and, you know, specifically the like, um, settler and immigrant classes in the United States, uh, in the last 200 years, that's just not how things work. A lot of, you know, there's, you know, Latin America has a lost decade. Some of you can talk about lost centuries. You can tell you the century of humiliation in China. So um, I think that a lot of people in the 2010s kind of are, came around to more of the conclusion that um, is put forward in that quote that, oh, actually you do, if you want things to get better, you actually have to do, you know, we can absolutely, but you do have to do it. You do have to make things better. Does that answer your question? MT? It does. It does answer my question. If we have uh, time for another one from me. Sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, this wrote, is kind of it. You wrote a lot of questions, so shout out to MT. I, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody you. shows me get nervous. It was like, oh, no, do we have enough questions? Is he going to get mad at our questions? <laughs> And I thought I had like a good handful of questions and MT was like, I'll show you. So <laughs> I'm going to move out of the way and let you uh, go ahead and take Well, after reading your book last night, I woke up this morning with this question. Um, right. And so I'm like, I got to get it in. Um, if the people's will continues to be frustrated, do we get more Gavrilo principles? Get more what? Sorry. Gavrilo principles. 
uh, assassinator of uh, Archduke. Oh, Prince. Jesus. Oh, yeah, the, uh, of course. Um, so that type of thing, um, I think that in the... When constructing the story of this particular set of tactics, because, the, you know, the, the, his tactic was assassination, right? So this was early 20th century kind of like terror in the, in the, in the, the classic terror version mm -hmm. of terror. That his, his, when you say his name, I think you're talking about a tactic. And in, in my book is about right. it, tactics. I think that tactics to explain why a certain tactic becomes hegemonic, why it becomes chosen, you have to look at the range of number one, the, the, the ideological background, like what people think is a good thing to do. And that's kind of that quote that was read that he read at the very beginning about, you know, what people reach for, what people, the, 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 the kind of responses people know about mm -hmm. um, is half of the story. But then the other half of the story is like, what is possible, right? Like what are the actual, what are the actual range of, things that are available as options to, mm -hmm. to people. So in the decade that I look at, I think that the type of apparently spontaneous leaderless mass protest is something that is there relatively easy to put together and also combines, you know, it also overlaps with this pre-existing set of ideological assumptions that some people have that this thing will, 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 will necessarily or probably lead to something, lead to something uh, better. But if you really, really close the range of options available to people, mm -hmm. then you get, you get people responding in the only way that is possible. Um, and often you get people responding in the only way that is possible, even if, if it ends up being kind of like a, a cry for, uh, a, a cry, uh, 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 I mean, there was back in then, I don't know what his particular ideological permission was, but there was like, you know, there was the idea back in the late 19th century of like the propaganda of the deed that like there'd be right. the one big piece of violence that would get everybody to, that didn't work out so well usually. No. But, but when you, but I do, I think what, I think the way that I, I think agree with the um, basis of your question is that like, if you foreclose the range of options available to people, especially under conditions of extreme exploitation or, or, or desperation, they will reach for what is available. Um, and, and then, and then, and then everyone afterwards, uh, sees where the, where the pieces land. But often I think as the last question demonstrates, it's possible that they land in a worse place, depending on, uh, the choice, the choice that is given, but that choice is always conditioned by the possibilities, uh, presented mm -hmm. materially to, to, to people. And uh, for those that don't know, Garvillo Prince-Snip is the person that shot uh, Archduke for Grant Ferdinand. Yeah, I, I I knew I had to I had to like remember really quickly. Uh, yeah, the assassination that led to World War One, the Serbian. And and uh, now for no one that knows who Franz Ferdinand is, Tucson is to sing that single. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, in, in 1914 he killed he killed the lead singer of a Scottish. Uh, <laughs> Post post punk band. Uh, it set off World War One because the Austro Hungarian Empire was in an alliance with Scotland. And the US took the other side because the strokes uh, was the was, strokes. Was, <laughs> the strokes were at war with 
they had for, yeah, they, they had been at war with Franz Ferdinand for many years, <laughs> stealing their thing and doing it in a cooler accent. So that's the story of World War One. And that's uh, how you get block party. So <laughs> that's, yeah, that well, block party is the yeah, what is the they were the vanguard of the, 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 the community, the, the world community come to get, coming together to put together a post-war system after World War One. Of course, it, it falls apart very quickly, and then that's how we got World War Two. Is the Black Party is ultimately unstable and insulting to the Germans. <laughs> and then, and then you know what you get after that? You get the uh, the revolutionary power of TV on the radio. So. Yes. Uh, someone was asking the question, and I think it's in Portuguese, and I was afraid they wanted us to ask you something that was naughty, but apparently it's not. Um, a, co- yeah. a coxina? Am I saying it right? What is a coxinha? I saw the question. Okay. What is a coxinha? Uh, a coxinha is two things. It actually is a body part, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. It <laughs> is a food... That is like, it looks like a, it's like egg shaped, but it's fried on the outside and the inside there is uh, shredded chicken and it's quite good. But it is also a slur that can be lodged against, and this is a slur that many, many Latin American, it's not a slur exactly. It is an insult that many, many Latin American countries have for kind of like reactionary bourgeois shitheads. Mm -hmm. Like, um, like. We don't really know how to pronounce, like, translate it, but it's like preppy scum or whatever. I don't. That's not even right. But koshina would be like you go to a party and it's like, you know, oh yeah, like you know how was that party? It's like ah, oh, you know, it was pretty good, but it was like koshina. You know, there's it was it was kind of a little bit koshina. Um, that is a word that is used to deride or identify, like annoying shitty rich kids uh in spanish it's like fresa there's like this what this word exists in, in a lot of latin american countries i don't think we really we don't really have one right in the u.s for for this i guess you're, you you talked about like the in the 80s movie there was like the the like the ski like the, 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 the james the spader yeah. yeah but uh yeah cushing is both a delicious fried snack and <laughs> and a tool of verbal class war in the brazilian context if you want like if you say coxinha you're center you're left of center probably because you're you're calling out like the the spoiled children of the bourgeoisie for being both evil and having bad taste basically greatest 80s movie villain in my opinion has to be roy stalin from better off dead Roy Stalin from Better Off Dead. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's this kind of a, it's in Kush, yeah, the Kushinha in the Brazilian context imply like uh, uh, uh and again this is common in Latin America. Um Cifrino would be the the Venezuelan. It implies a kind of decrepit like the like they are the they're not strong. They're not jocks. They it means that they're kind of like weak. They are the symptom of a uh decadent bourgeoisie that cannot, you know, but definitionally, a Koshina would have grown up with like a maid and doesn't know how to do anything and has no, like they're not strong. Uh, so that's the difference, mm. I suppose. Interesting. Interesting. I was afraid it was like, have him say dick in Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> Make Koshina's your very fine. esteemed guest say dick in Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like. It's not what we do here, at least on the main show. <laughs> In the champagne room is where everybody says words like, damn, I didn't know you knew that many curse words. Um, How many languages do you speak, Vincent? Uh, 
English really well. Portuguese basic, like I could do a podcast in Portuguese. The Portuguese almost as well as uh, English. Spanish not quite as well. Like I can give talks in Spanish, but I couldn't like riff in Spanish. I probably wouldn't do. I don't. I don't tend to do like Spanish language um like podcasts. But yeah, I know Spanish for sure. And then Indonesia. I did all of the interviews for the Jakarta Method in Indonesian. Although I definitely couldn't like shoot the shit in Indonesian. Like I really had to be like in the 1960s. Khrushchev took this decision. What was your opinion as a member of the Indonesian? Community? I had to really kind of like structure the sentences. Uh, and then German, I could do all basic transactions. So it's I don't wow. know, four and a half, something like this, depending on how you count them. Four point, you know, four point two five. I don't know. English, I don't know. English, something like this. I don't know. Yeah, when you wrote that in the book, I was like, I was a little jealous because here I am struggling <laughs> to say the most simple things in Spanish, and you know, Vincent Bevins is going around the world like, you know, talking to everybody in the hood <laughs> in the hood well yeah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, not doing wrong with my life the yeah span i mean i got a i got a i got a uh, i got a jump start on, on spanish because i've i have cousins in mexico city so i've spent quite a bit oh, of time okay okay i'd spend some time you know I, I, it was available to me like my family didn't like learn like we didn't you know it wasn't like in the house but if we wanted to we could hang out with the mexican cousins and 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 i wanted to it, like go to Mexico and learn things. So when you get it, when you get it young, I think that helps to, to form the basis for all the other languages too. Are you, okay, this is a dumb question. Are you using the apps or are you going old school? Like I got a book and I just put my head nose in it. And learned it. Oh no, uh, no. What do you mean? Do like for, for, for dating? Oh no, for, 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 <laughs> I was like, I'm using the apps. Uh, I don't, I have a girlfriend and the, for languages, the apps don't work. The apps don't work. I thought you were trying to like really take the conversation, like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get personal. Are you on the apps? We're really getting in your business now. <laughs> the apps don't work. That's the answer to your question. Like, do that doesn't work. Duolingo doesn't work. It's a waste of time. I, uh, I, I perfected a language learning method a long time ago, and it's it's book. You like learn all the grammar on your own in a book, and then you start consuming lots of actual language like you start reading real books or watching real movies and then you filter all that raw material into the structure you've built with the book so you're saying like learn all the different um conjugations right conjugations. i went i saw i visited i would create that structure well this is what i do i create that structure in my brain mm -hmm. and then i pour into it real spanish so like once i have the basic structure i start reading like an actual book even if it's like a children's book um and then i use this structure over here to sort all of this material into the right places and then i figure out slowly how to understand real language and then you start to reproduce that's how i did that's what i've been trying to do but very 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 slowly but you made me feel like shit. i just want you to know that no <laughs> and then or and then and then ultimately what you do is you go like and then you start hanging out with lots of people that don't know English. And so like, this is what I, what I did in Venezuela right. and Brazil, I would just go out all the time, um, be very social, stay out talking with That's people. That's the most that, important yeah. thing. That's what I was always yeah. taught. That's what Gene yeah. told me to do. Gene Bajlan. when I first moved here, I was afraid to leave my house because I, my Spanish was so bad and people would like, you know, they tell you the price of things like you go to the grocery store. 
and you're not dealing with numbers in the states. It's not five dollars. It's like you know eight thousand <laughs> you know AIs or something like that. You're like, what number did you just say? Why did it take you so long to say that number? I got two things. Yeah. So I would get like panic attacks, and Gene Bajlan yelled at me. He's like, look, man, you're never gonna learn language unless you go out. So I make it a point to go out into the city. You have to be okay with, and this is something that. Because like a lot of times people are like, oh, you know a bunch of languages. You must have like that magic type of a brain where you just learn. Whereas like every language that I learned took like hundreds of hours of me trying very hard. But one of the things that stops people is that you have to spend like at the very beginning, you're like, oh, I know some things. And at the very end, now you're fluent. In the middle, there's a big bit where you kind of are making a fool of yourself all the time. You have to be okay with being kind of embarrassed. To, like, oh, get through. yeah. To get through this middle bit, you have to be okay with. And that's why like, you know, when I was younger, I would go out and like having a few drinks would often make it easier to like get through that, like testing out stuff when you know you're going to kind of look stupid. But a lot of, I know, I find that a lot of people stop at that level. They stop where they don't want to ever be Mm, in a position of embarrassed. Yeah. Or be, have less power in the transaction because they're clearly somebody that's trying to like fumble through a new language. But Mm. if you just like get, but that's like part of it. And it's like a few months and then you come out the other side. That's what I, that's why I've always approached it. But yeah, some people, especially because especially if you grew up in an English-speaking country, you don't ever have to. Oh, yeah. You yeah. don't you don't ever have to actually put yourself in a weaker position. In, you know what's shocking state. living here is meeting Americans that are mad people don't speak English. Hey. You know, we created this global empire. <laughs> we killed all of these millions of people. I thought that I could just show up and just, you know, you know. Just be a dick. No. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Um, Vincent, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, thank you for having look, me. I'm glad we had yeah, this. great. No, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, someone rang my doorbell. I think it's probably not for me, but I'll uh, figure that out in a second. <laughs> um, there's a part of me that wants to to have Vincent watch videos with us for like five minutes. There's another part of me that wants him to keep his journalistic integrity. I, I, got, I think I could hold on to whatever I got, but uh, is, is this an, is this a normal amount of one, one hour fifty minutes? That's pretty good for a video, huh? It's pretty good for. Oh no, we 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 definitely went over. We usually try to do an hour, and then we have a thing called the champagne room, where mm. sometimes, we take, sometimes we take the conversation into the champagne room. Sometimes we open up phone lines, but one thing we always do is we have fun because whenever you go into a VIP area, it's supposed to be fun. Yeah. And so Although in real life, it's often just like you've paid money to sit in a different little. You've paid money to be like, hey, I have money. Look at me. And then yeah, there's, right, right. there's no women here. What is this? And they're like, well, this is a shitty club VIP. There you go. Um, Someone's actually knocking now. Oh, is it the government? <laughs> I don't know. It could be. It could be. Uh, is it right if I say goodbye then? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fine. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for for having me, and and thank you truly for the questions. Thank you truly for the interest in the book. I, uh, the, it was really nice to think about, think through those issues with both of you. Hey, wherever you guys are watching or listening to the show, there's links in the description to Vincent's book. Um, and I don't think we answered the question, what happened to the revolution, but no, you th- the, the, what happened to the revolution? Uh, yeah, you know, the power vacuums were formed and then organized or cynical elements took the 
place to enter the vacuums instead of the original organizers. And then the question of where the revolution is, they, I said Egypt, but uh, that's just because I like, I'm into recent, I just like thinking about the recent Egyptian history. So that's what I, 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 I one, one word answer. I enjoyed the, uh, the Egypt chapter. So thank you very much, Vincent. Have a thank very you so much for both of you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you both. I'm going to go to pick up this, answer the door now. Thank you, Philly. Thank you very much. Peace. Bye-bye. Oh, we got through it, Tucson. We did it. Where'd you go? Did you mute yourself? You didn't mute yourself. Where'd you go? I can't hear you. You muted yourself. Oh, you're the worst. Tucson, did you mute yourself? You're just, you're, I can hear you typing, but you're not talking. You can hear me breathing? I can hear you doing a lot of things, but I couldn't hear you talking. Now I can hear you. Okay, now, now, now I'm back. Jesus. I what happened. Did you did you disappear? No, but I got a thing, a warning saying that, that I have no sound. <laughs> wow. I, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen Restream do that before. What? That was so weird. That was very, um, very weird. We did it. That, what did you think of Bevan's book? I loved it. I loved it. I liked the high-level approach to history and analyzing different events and strategies. You got to know a lot to do that, the way he skips around, you know? Oh, man. Well, you said it took 10 years, and it, it felt mm -hmm. like it. It's, it's a great book. If you guys like the Jakarta method, definitely check out If We Burn. Um, I really, really liked it. I haven't seen him doing too many, too much press on it. Um, have you? Um, a little bit, a little bit, but not that much. Like I said, I heard him on the Bunga Cast, which was great. Um, someone says Empty Sign had a lot of great questions today. You did. Shout out to Empty Sign. What you guys Thank don't know. You. And I'll be I'll say this again. A lot of the questions that you hear on this show are empty sign questions. <laughs> More Thank than you, you think. More than you think. More than you think are empty sign questions. So I I was blown. I was so confident when I went to sleep last night. Because usually right. I wake up in the morning frantic. Frantic. Stress by And I was like, nope. I'm gonna I'm gonna write out all these good things that I think are talking points. And I woke up and I, I opened the computer and I see you. I was like, oh damn, she had a hell of a question. <laughs> <laughs> she, I can tell when you like a book. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess I can that's tell, true. I can tell when you hate a book. I can tell when you're like this this Negro's got me reading again. <laughs> That's why I've been taking on all the authors by myself. You and Marcus made me feel so bad. Yes, it's not it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. You guys are like, Jason, there's just too much reading. I was like, don't you guys like reading? Like, no one likes reading. This don't much. you guys like reading? <laughs> no, one, no one wants to read 95 articles. Um, I've seen this movie probably a hundred times. I'm not saying that in that way. Gosh. No, I've probably seen it a hundred times. 
Oh. Have you seen the movie Lean on Me? I have seen the movie Lean on Me. Has anyone watching the show right now in the chat seen the movie Lean on Me? With Morgan Freeman. Did I ever tell you? Like, so remember this? They, they remade the song Lean on Me, right? Remember Club Nouveau redid it? Which was pretty good. The first time I rehearsed at the studio I ended up living in, Club Nouveau was next door. <laughs> of course. <laughs> They're from they're from the Bay. They were they were next door, and I and I didn't. I was like, oh, they sounds like they're playing that song "Lean on Me." <laughs> so I knocked on the door. <laughs> Hello, rudely, just like, hey, that sounds pretty good. What's the name of your band? He goes, Club Nouveau. We did that song "Lean on Me" back in the day, and he like hummed a little bit for me. <laughs> wow. Look at all these romas. Remember that? That was them too. I believe so. Um, This is the movie about the most reactionary black man of all time that is still the underclass story that everybody needs to hear. Um, What's so cool about Lean On Me is somebody made a video about the opening scene of the movie. And if again, if you ever all these movies in the 80s and the 90s that depicted the inner city was an inner city that I've never lived in. And I lived in the hood. And all hoods look the same. <laughs> like, I know when I'm in a ghetto. You just know. You start driving around, you're like, man, the bank sure did leave. <laughs> oh. Sure are no uh, fresh food grocery stores yeah, around here. Sure is a lot of check cashing places. Everybody's got bulletproof glass. <laughs> right? Yeah. All hoods look the same. Raggedy ass cars got big ass rims all of a sudden. All hoods look the same. All bad schools are very similar. But Lean On Me was just this. Ah, They perfected the not real bad place. Yeah. Because they have to justify what the actual principal Joe Clark did by trying to lock out, lock in his students. He basically made the students prisoners in their own school. And he's the hero of the story. So the movie starts out where these girls are bullying a girl in the bathroom. Maybe this has happened before somewhere. I'm sure somewhere. Kids are mean. Kids do some mean shit. But what happens after the fact, I never noticed this until this dude brought it up. And he made this movie an entirely new experience. Stand and Deliver was better than Lean on Me. Yes. Yes, it was. It was a little more real. Thinking of Stand By Me. Stand By Me is a little different. What is want to see it, Joe Clark. Joe Clark and River Phoenix. No, no, those are very different movies. Y'all remember the movie Lean On Me about the most ghetto high school in America in the 1980s. Like the opening scene to this is just pure fucking chaos. But I found something funny. Check it out.
Now, what I want you to pay attention to is this young man. <laughs> now, in the short time given to this young man wearing this leather, I don't know, Civil War soldier hat, he does so much. Just watch. Boom. Step one. He saw some titties. I don't blame him. I get it. Step two. Get some bite seat. Fucking wins. Boom. And what does he do to top it off? Hits on the fucking people. This man, fucking legend. Gotta talk like Bill Cosby. What in the world? <laughs> How are you? <laughs> 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 he whooped the tooth. He got you fight in one. What's funny is like no one stopped. This girl is topless and screaming. In what high school in the world does a topless screaming girl run out of the bathroom and everyone's like, bro, I got to get to class. Like if the high school is so bad, why is anyone even there? <laughs> That's true. Oh, my God. <laughs> you whooped the dude's ass. Remember that's the that's the class president that gets the one girl pregnant. <laughs> it's gonna show her how to make pound cake. There you go. Good callback. Dusty said, "Oh, it's just Rachel. So typical." <laughs> <laughs> Jason makes me want to watch all these trash 80s straight-to-video movies. Then I'm doing something right. Fuck yeah. Let's watch Class of Newcomb High for movie nights. We gotta, you know what? We got to watch a Christmas movie and the greatest Christmas movie. We, we, we have to do a vote. It's going to be either Gremlins, Night of the Comet, or Lethal Weapon. Or, 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 or what's the one with Bruce Willis? Die Hard. Those are the choices. Weapon. Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Night of the Comet, or Gremlins. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation where these movies were up against each other. <laughs> Especially Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. It's, They're Christmas then, movies. And you throw in Gremlins and it's like, whoa, what, what am I going to choose here? They are all Christmas movies. Night of the Comet is, one, is my favorite Christmas movie. When Burgess lived here, he was writing one of his articles and I was watching it and he's like, I don't know what you're watching, but when I'm done, I want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch it too. Night of the Comet is like the perfect low budget horror movie. It's creepy. It's fun. It's funny. It's scary. It's awesome. But yeah, lean on me. 
is is problematic. It is a problematic. Movie. Um, I want to stay on black people shit for a minute. Mm-hmm. J MJ, you never saw Night of the Comet. It, it's on YouTube right now. I love Night of the Comet. I would love to watch it with you guys. Again, one of my favorite '80s horror movies. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. Um, Rare Imports. I I saw for the first time maybe three four years ago. Awesome Christmas movie. That would probably be perfect for the show because it really is about capitalist production, where these people find these um elves, and they they ended up taking over this population of elves. <laughs> Wow. And they send them off to America as mall Santas. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, you have to. It's 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 if you re, it, it's a great riff on capitalist production. Does it sound like a double feature to you? Ooh, if Jeremy is down, that you know that's the thing you got to ask Jay. He's the Jay man Sizzle. in charge. Jay Sizzle's the man in charge. Lean on me as Larry Elder. Ooh, Eric, very right. For those that haven't seen the Larry Elder clip, can we make that go viral? Because the gooning thing going viral does kind of hurt my feelings. <laughs> no. I think that our ripping apart of Larry Elder is way funnier. But, yeah. but this right here is it's a rapper that maybe you know. I don't know who this rapper is. Let's and, see. and it's some black woman making her feel bad about her lyrics. <laughs> so she's she's in like this room full of pictures of like historical black figures. She goes, you look at Sojourner Truth and you tell her to clap that thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most lean on me boys in the hood fucking John Singleton shit I've ever seen in my goddamn life. And I just, I had no words. And I was like, I have to show this to Toussaint because I want to hear what she has to say. So I don't, you know who this rapper is. I don't know who the rapper is. Yourself an entertainer? No, ma'am. I want you to come over here and I want you to read these lyrics to Dorothy Dandridge. Go ahead, read those to her. It would be, it would be embarrassing. Read them to her. Pop my butt, pop, pop my butt. Pop my butt, pop, pop my butt. Do you know what? I don't know who that rapper is. I mean, I mean, I don't think Dorothy Dandridge has that much of a problem with it. Hey. That's what the kids are doing now. They're butt popping, eh? <laughs> you know, I fucked a director for a part in a movie. <laughs> nice. Nice Dorothy Dandridge impersonation. <laughs> That's how she's going to. I mean, she'd have to come back from the dead. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Um, so you don't know who this rapper is or the black woman? No. The the black woman is Ayanla Van Zant. That's what her name is. Mm-hmm. You, you made it sound like that's one of your aunties. She's a professional auntie. <laughs> She's doing some auntie ass auntie shit right now. She sure is. This is what happens when your middle class parents find out that you have been listening to Two Live Crew in nineteen ninety two. Hey, hey, and more hey. hey. <laughs> oh, you want to hey, hey, and more hey, huh? Well, why don't you hey, hey in front of Martin Luther King, huh? 
<laughs> Martin Luther the King. <laughs> <laughs> like, like he would have a problem with that. Oh, I like the two live crew. Yes, I do. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Like <laughs> you think Pog Chaser MLK is gonna have a problem with two live crew? <laughs> God. Hey, hey, and Mohe is what I have to say. Um, so she goes on. What pop my butt met to Harriet Tubman? Why does Harriet Tubman? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Why? Why did this air and no one's laughing? <laughs> there should be a laugh track to this. <laughs> Wait, I'm gonna add the laugh track. All right, I'm gonna add the laugh, All right. laugh track. I'll add the laugh track. Do you know what that meant? It meant a whip. It meant a whip to her. Rosa Parks sat on the bus. Read that to her. <laughs> Go ahead. Everything I want, I have. Really? Everything I want, I have. You know what she wanted? A seat on a damn bus. Sit down. She's. She wanted a little more than a seat on it. You know what she wanted? She just wanted to sit down because her feet hurt. Her feet. You know why her feet hurt? From butt popping. <laughs> From butt popping. That may not be right, dog skin sister. <laughs> wow. Pulling them out. Okay. Damn. Like, and does this woman have a dick tattooed on her hand? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I hope so. Go for it, lady. Yeah, and you sing that. And what are you talking about? Go ahead. What are you talking about when you say it? That I turn, I turn up where I'm at because I'm a false bitch. I'm right there. Is that a dick on her hand? What is that? That's a shitty dude. So many rappers have the worst fucking test. So many people. I agree. Jesus, this fucking is that a dick on her hand? Stop. That's what I would have said if I was a fucking Ayanna Presley. What's this woman's name? Ayanna Van Zandt. That's what I said. <laughs> Ayana Don't confuse me, Toussaint. <laughs> Ayanna Presley. <laughs> Oh, that's a very different lady. I see so much thick chocolate, I just lose my mind. God. <laughs> Lord. If it's not a dick on your hand, like, that's what I would have been saying. I would have been like, fuck your lyrics. Did you have a dick tattooed on your hand? Like, that's weird. Why is it there? Why would a dick be on your hand? What can you do with that? Do you do some sort of reverse hand job that you're known for? What is the deal? Probably a crucifix. That's even worse because they made the crucifix. It's a crucifix. Oh, God. I'd be mad at the blaspheme that just happened with dick hand crucifix lady. You tell you tell Rosa Parks what you want. <laughs> Freedom. Oh, God. <laughs> 
Rosa Parks was just a lonely seamstress. That's all she did. She seamstressized. Seamstressized. <laughs> well, actually, Rosa Parks uh, actually investigated the rapes of black women that went unreported. I don't know about any of that. I just know. Mm-hmm. That she didn't have a tattoo dick on her hand. Jesus. I'm a frost bitch. I pay the cost to be the boss bitch. Oh, you telling Sojourner Truth you the boss bitch? Um, sure. <laughs> Why not? It's, it's a picture. Yeah, what's she going to do about it right now? You tell her a lot of things. Like, I get what she's trying to do. Yes. And uh, A, this woman seems a little old for that. Like the rapper. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, what do you, how do you want her to react? This is going to get, you're going to get two reactions, right? You're going to get the Sukiana reaction, which is, yeah, I said it. I'll say it again. The child's reaction. Yeah, just the kids' reaction. You caught me stealing. I wasn't. Fuck you, you know. Um, or you're gonna get shame because you, you're trying. You're shaming her. There's a camera there. She knows this is gonna be on the internet. She goes, maybe some niggas in Mexico are gonna make fun of me. <laughs> niggas in Mexico. Niggas in <laughs> Mexico. Niggas in Paris. <laughs> and she just doesn't stop. Like, come on, man. Like, what do you want? To, do you want this woman to stop doing what she's doing right now? The only way this woman is in front of you right now is because she says, pop my ass, pop, 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 pop my ass. What do you want her to say? You want her to say, Sojourner Truth wouldn't pop her ass? And then what? You want her to break down crying. Yeah, and then what? Move back in with her fucking then, abusive boyfriend. Like, you get the ratings, then you get the money, then you get the power. Then you get the power. Next, I'll be working fries. No, God. I was like, this. <laughs> Next, I'll be working fries. Okay, last one because it's been too long. Um, and thank you for rewatching Lean on Me with me, Tucson. That was fun. This is just for you because you're a raw vegan. People don't know that about you. Oh, man. <laughs> you eat a salad I... all of a sudden. <laughs> you you should have ate a burger that night in New York, and I wouldn't give you so much shit. But you wanted to be. Wasn't it your food that took extra long? That was because Cuba stole my food. <laughs> blame the white man. You people always blame the white man. Blame the white man. <laughs> oh God. Um. This woman, first of all, is not the part-time yoga teacher that I'm looking for. Hmm. Because the part-time yoga teacher totally eats meat. This woman, I need you to explain, and you can say it live time, why this diet is horrible. She's talking about what she eats in a day. 
to eat in a day, no meat, dairy, eggs, or gluten. Mm. For breakfast, I'm having about four pounds of watermelon, which is... God damn. Four pounds. Right, right there. <laughs> H, she says most of the time he's not wrong when he's blaming a white man. <laughs> <laughs> H, G, you got a point. You definitely have a point. Somebody said for breakfast. I don't want to hear shit about niggas with watermelon because she's fucking that shit up. She just went. Four pounds of it. Four pounds of it. There's almost a third of this watermelon here. For lunch, I'm having five Envy apples. These have been so good lately. For a snack, I'm having one pomegranate with a little bit of maple syrup along with one banana. And for dinner, I'm having just over two pounds of golden potatoes along with a big leafy green salad. These are just regular steamed potatoes with a little bit of pepper on top and potatoes go really great with leafy greens. And for dessert, I had four dates. Like and follow for more weight loss content. There wasn't a vegetable in there. In where? <laughs> in her in her thing, in her in her meal of the day. <laughs> Kushlik says she's going to literally shit a brick. <laughs> <laughs> Dusty says, and at night I free base B twelve. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Miller says that woman must shatter toilet. Man. <laughs> Secret ancient dances. Hate your life and lose weight. Follow for more. Follow for more recipes on how to hate your life and hate yourself. <laughs> and be angry and hungry all day. <laughs> this woman spent a quarter of her waking hours chewing and eating. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Oh she does. Tucson, can you explain this diet to me? Is this healthy? Um healthy is a funny word. <laughs> uh I would say no. I went to a lecture once and this guy was like the reason why you see all well, he was just like you see these um these frugitarians, they <laughs> only eat fruit, and these raw vegans. And he's like, they're always twenty four years old. It's funny how they're always twenty four years old. And it's true. Because no older person is gonna eat like that. <laughs> says her teeth enamel is under threat. <laughs> <laughs> I repeat, her teeth and nail is under threat. Hence <laughs> oh, the all black and skeletal frame. Oh, the comments were hilarious. People was like, dude, your body is eating itself with this diet. I'm shocked about the steamed potatoes. It's very unorthodox. Where's the protein that she's getting? She's getting it from the leafy greens. Uh, really? Mm-hmm. Leafy greens have protein. Enough? I mean, what is she doing all day? She's eating watermelon. <laughs> she is enough to function if that's all she's doing. Can we just yell at her? <laughs> <laughs> yell eating, at her. Off the, eating off the system, no watermelon, leading that bitch. 
<laughs> Watermelon eating ass, bitch. Because <laughs> oh. micronutrients from the air. You know why these videos are fun to me? Because this is the time that everybody gets together and we just clown people. <laughs> mm. We just get together. Um. So this woman actually is popular on the internet. And that mm. one comedian guy that you don't like was spoofing her. Comedian guy that I don't like. He's the guy that goes, watch this, watch this, watch this. <laughs> My stomach is bubbling. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I'm not a big fan of that guy, but it was more about the video because I need you to explain to me what this woman was making. Because, again, you live in New York. All the food that's supposed to be great in the world is in New York, right? Sure it is. I mean, it's not true. It is true. It isn't true. It is not. It's so said not so. He said so. That's why you're afraid to come here, because you know once you come here and you see the sun. <laughs> I see the sun. And you don't have to talk in a battle rap just to, you know, cross the street. <laughs> David, <laughs> David says, yeah, she's getting like five grams of protein a day. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Oh, that's oh, okay. Well, I won't play this now. They said that's the stomach bubbling guy is transphobic. I don't know anything about that. Oh, I don't know anything about that. I'm not gonna say watch his comedy. I just thought this video about <laughs> semen vegan. <laughs> Damon says her stomach is definitely bubbling. It is. Four pounds of watermelon by herself. It's about a third of this watermelon. Who? Who? Where? Like, what do you do for a living? Just that is what she does. Eat four pounds of watermelon a day? That's a job? That's you can pay your rent with that? She does it on video. I don't think it had that many views. Follow her for more recipes. I don't want her recipe and shit in my house. Recipe. Oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Four pounds of watermelon. How big is her bladder? Exactly. She got nothing to do with pee all day. Charles says she works at a toilet store. <laughs> <laughs> she sells bidets. <laughs> she sells um, can you just explain to me again? This is not an endorsement of this gentleman. This is just this is more of a kind of commentary on the food that's being made. Where'd it go? Slowly pour these into here in our casserole dish. Okay, I see the grapes, but what's the white circles in there? And you're gonna want to evenly distribute these, making sure there's none on top of the cheese. Grapes and cheese? Okay, this must be some kind of charcuterie. Walnuts, grapes, and cheese? Now, what do you think she's gonna do with that, Tucson? Is she gonna bake that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Like, what? What is this supposed to be? Does anyone know what this is supposed to be? 
Because this person making this dish is also a professional toilet salesman. <laughs> like, what's funny, if you've ever been around cookbooks, post-World War II cookbooks, especially when, like, uh, maybe, like, 50s-era cookbooks, when, like, get out of the factory, lady, and get back in the house, you pretty dame. <laughs> Look at all these newfangled gadgets we have for you to cook with. Um, there's a lot of stuff like this. There's so many casseroles that when you look at the, the recipe, you're like, that looks like bullshit. And it's just like marketing a product. You know, you get the better homes. It's like, what can you do with craft mayonnaise? Have you ever tried a bullshit casserole? And so, um, there's if you go back, there's a lot of stuff like that. And living with that family, they had some old, some old cookbooks, and and going in some of those old cookbooks, I was like, oh wow, this sounds, this sounds not good. <laughs> this sounds so not good. But um, I was interested in this because like, okay, grapes are good and there's cheese. So I thought the same thing as the guys, just some sort of charcuterie thing. And then when I saw the nuts, I was like, Oh, is she going to bake this? Uh, so yeah. 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 Just wait till you see what I do with this. What else? Yeah. Like what the fuck are you going to do with it? What you about to do? That should be it. Shouldn't it? Next, I'm going to take some olive oil and a little bit of salt and some black pepper. Okay, now we're going to take this and we're going to put it in our preheated oven. Eh, in the oven? What, what's happening here? At 400 for 25 minutes. Oh. Why would you bake grapes? I guess to make them turn into raisins? <laughs> <laughs> I guess. What? Is someone watching the show right So... <clears throat> Toussaint's been messing with me because when you know me and you're part of the TIR team, when everybody wasn't so freaking busy, we would have these group calls. And I remember having the group call. I was always cooking. And Toussaint would like yell at me. And I'd be like, I have to go out and give food. She goes, no, you probably have food at home. Just cook at home. And then we're having our, you know, show meeting and I'm cooking in front of her. She goes, you need to do a cook thing. You need to cook. So I finally did like a cooking thing, kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. And it's kind of embarrassing because I'm like, I know how to cook. I've done it professionally. But still, I don't like people seeing me do it. You know what I mean? Hmm. And I don't think I make crazy stuff. Like, you watch me make a burger and fries. Like, bam. Yeah. Right? It looked good, didn't it? Can you tell the truth? It did. See, why would you bake raisins or bake grapes? Right, bake grapes. Yeah. yeah, there's no. I don't understand the purpose of this. This is one of those things where you're you don't know what you're doing. You've never worked in a real kitchen, and you just throw shit in the pot. And I don't even think she's one of those people that like I'm gonna do gross stuff like the guy that cooks in the hotel. A methy hotel bathroom. Like I don't even think she's like that. I think she really thinks this is delicious. Just like you ease that pan into the oven, we about to ease you into your jail cell. <laughs> Time to take this out. 
Yummy. Who finna eat hot grapes? <laughs> That's kind of funny. It doesn't make any sense. I can't lie. I don't understand the purpose of the hot grapes and nuts. Like, how did you? Hot grapes and nuts. With olive oil. I'm curious now. Yeah. Who, who, who sits around and is like, man, I got all these delicious, fat-ass, factory-farmed grapes that are just taste like cotton candy, each one. <sighs> Want to make a grape pie? Mm, nah, cheese. let's put it with some cheese. That sounds amazing. And this is the part that's fucked up, Toussaint. She's not done. Gosh. The hot grapes is just the beginning. Hot grapes in the digging dish. Now we're going to mix it all up. I'm just not sure. What, what is this, grape casserole? Oh, yeah, that's perfect. Look at that. No. Oh, just look at the cheese. Oh, my stomach bubbling. That looks good for now. No, it don't. Okay, now I got some cooked pasta here. Wow, that's actually starting to look good. It looked like shit before, husband? Yeah, thanks. Still like shit. Hey, hey, now it doesn't look like bullshit. Uh, what do you know? The name's all right. Oh, God. MJ says, oh, gross. Sean Moon just has the throw up emoji. Tucson, what, you're from New York. What is this? That is not, nothing to do with New York. <laughs> that is not a New York cuisine. Not at all. <laughs> Eric says so expecting some Doritos. <laughs> right. <laughs> then you should some like, Doritos on top. You know what's great with this? Jiffy. You're like, oh, God. It'll look better in the trash. Okay, now I'm going to top this off with some Parmesan cheese. More cheese? That looks great. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to make it. Okay, now we're going to put this back in the oven for just about two or three minutes on broil. Yeah, just. Is she Canadian? Because it's not like she said a boot. Hmm. She kind of did, <laughs> right? Says, mm, hot grape pasta. <laughs> 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 we should. I wish for the TIR winter party, the winter formal. The winter formal. The TIR winter formal. We had a hot grape casserole. Jeez. I don't understand hot grapes. Neither. Like, what about this? Is is this like okay, Dusty? Is this a dish in a foreign land? Doesn't Dusty live in Israel? I think so. I want to. I want to know. Is this like something? Casserole is a terrible word. It can be, right? Casserole can be a horrible word. I'm really into this baked French toast that I get at this um this place down here in Rosarito. It's so good, and I try. I replicated it yesterday, or did my best to try to replicate it, and I loved it. I love it. It's my new favorite go-to thing. And this other place I ate breakfast at that I'm tr- going to try to go to when we're done with the show mm-hmm. has this really good, 
la leche con cream cheese, <laughs> like frosting with syrup and bacon. That's hella good. I put mm. that on top of the French toast. So it was like it was it was decadent and delicious. Okay. But I didn't, you know, it's just not baked grapes. It's not baked grapes. I would never think to bake grapes. Your favorite. Oh, so let's just see. What just make sure your bathroom got some toilet tissue. Take it out. Yeah. Oh, Ooh, she making a plate and they about to eat it. Watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. All right, cheers. Oh. You heard that? Oh. What? It's like, <laughs> when she tries to pull out some of it. Oh, my gosh. That is soupy mess. Schmegley says grape tomatoes. Yes, exact. Dude, there's pasta dishes you can make with grape tomatoes. That would have made way more sense. This don't. You know when kids cook for the first time and they're in the kitchen and they want to make you breakfast. You ever do that for your parents? Mm-hmm. You and your siblings got together like little Keebler elves and you guys are gonna make breakfast for your parents and all you made was a goddamn mess. Yeah. Um, that's what this was to me. An adult cooking like a five-year-old. Cooking five-year-old. So. <laughs> Windex plus pears equals cookies. <laughs> <laughs> See, MJ says evil white cuisine. This woman is not white. She's some sort of ethnic. Should we make up uh, ethnicity for her to make it more fun? Oh my god! We're already at the rate the racism cancellation train. Let's make up an ethnicity. <laughs> <laughs> and the final clip of the day is someone that you've been doing some uh, recon on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't like this guy. I think he's full of poo. I think everything he says is not true. Okay. Um, you don't like him either. Who's do you want to give people a quick rundown on who Charleston White is? Oh, Charleston. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Um, Charleston White is a former gang banger gang leader who went straight after going to jail or something and became a community leader. And now he sits on the internet and calls out rappers for glorifying violence. He also is a part-time coon. (laughs) Part-time cooning. <laughs> He's a part time coon who goes too far. Oh, God. Toussaint, your neighborhood is the Lean on Me neighborhood. I just want you to know that. It's just busy. You. 
totally live in the lean on me neighborhood right now. Just busy. Busy with what? Crime. No. <laughs> Your neighborhood is what Eric Adams is complaining about. No. We're not against rap. <laughs> We're against those neighborhoods. <laughs> We're against those uh, niggers. Let's just say it. So Charleston White, nice. I didn't realize it was cockeyed. Uh, he he lost one of his, so one of his eyes is glass. Ah, you did a bunch of recon on him. Why does he cut his hair this way? <laughs> Why does he cut his hair this way? Because <laughs> it's respectable. <laughs> this is Charleston White tap dancing for Cam Newton. When I wasn't talking like that, wearing a bow tie, y'all wasn't paying me no attention. And I was going to the Supreme Court, changing laws and legislations in this country. What law did he change? I couldn't tell you. I don't think he can either. I was working with over 50 U.S. congressional members from Ted Cruz to Mark Rubio, Senator John Cornyn. And I was telling on everybody. <laughs> All the niggas. All the Puerto Ricans. <laughs> If you sitting there bragging about you worked with Marco Rubio and you changed <laughs> legislation, I feel very confident that whatever legislation you got changed was longer sensing requirements for skin color. Probably. He literally hit you with the Uncle Ruckus. <laughs> Might as well have been throwing bricks at him. Okay. I was on the front page of the American Bar Association Journal. I <laughs> don't trust this man with a big circle and a cross through it. <laughs> or or was the was the picture of him with the bow tie and it said conservative America's black savior. Had done a study with News 21, Walter Conkrank School of Journalism. I'm not going to make fun of the mispronunciation of Cronkite. It's just Southern twang. Hmm. But what was the study on? Niggas that snitch. <laughs> y'all wasn't paying attention then. So nigga, I gave y'all what y'all want. A ignorant motherfucking nigga that talk like them rappers. Now y'all listen. I mean, if Marco Rubio is listening, why do you give a fuck what I'm listening to? <laughs> if you have the ear of power, Charleston White, doesn't really matter what Cam Newton thinks. Uh-oh, Tucson, are you gone? Uh-oh. Yep, she lost her sound once again. I I wanted her to comment on this because she had hit me up the other day. Because she had done a bunch of research. Tucson did a bunch of research on Charleston White. <laughs> I took Ted Cruz to Cancun in my spaceship. <laughs> like he named the most staunchly conservative members of Congress. It's this dude is is a is a I don't understand why he's as famous as he is. 
I mean, I know he does a lot of coonery. Toussaint, again, did the reconnaissance on the coonery. She hit me up. She goes, I had no idea the levels of coonery. Um. <laughs> Giano says cronkite <laughs> sounds like one of the minerals that has no industrial applications. <laughs> Your sound is back? Yes. Okay. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, now I can. Can you explain who he is real quick before we go? Uh, Charleston White? Yeah. Like, why is he even famous? Because he just says rappers lie. He's a professional snitch. I mean. He uh, has yeah. t-shirts that say nanny nanny boo boo. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. He grew up a snitch. Oh my god. He was raised by snitches. You know, grandma was looking out the window and snitching on people. He said that's a that's that's the way to be. Some people I mean, call him a comedian because they think he's funny. So he leaned into that. But then, you know. When you're not a comedian and you're called a comedian, it, things could get a little crazy. Do you think, like all jokes aside, do you think he's offended by the coon comments and that's why he makes those statements like that? Like, no, I'm a serious person and I've done serious person stuff. Probably. Probably he didn't realize that he went too far <laughs> in these, doing what he's these, supposed to. Are you looking at the chat? What is the chat? Saying? Throws the chat. Oh my God! A vegan. A vegan can eat six pounds of peel crunk. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> really clears the bowel. <laughs> right. The He's a comedian like, like this. Right. He really said. Cam Newton. Other guy looks like if Andre 3000 and Willy Wonka got their bags mixed up in the airport. It's cool. Cam Newton looks crazy. He's wearing white J-Lo pants. (laughs) (laughs) Wait. Have you ever seen the video that comedian Ryan Davis did about Cam Newton? Mm Mm-mm. He did. I got it. Let me see if I can find it. If I can find it, we have to show it. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. He is from North Carolina and he did this thing on Cam Newton and why Cam Newton can't dress. Oh, I found it. It's called Cam Newton. He said Cam Newton needs an intervention. He basically blames it on Michael Jordan. He comes in on Michael George. Wait, 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 wait. Because, you know, Michael Jordan is like the worst dresser of all time. Yeah. Man, what's with the Hitler mustache, Michael Jordan? That too. 
Taylor stash. <laughs> Dusty says Charles DeWise seems like one of those guys that doesn't wash his ass because he thinks it's gay. <laughs> when I heard, was you the one that told me that? What? About dudes not washing their ass because it's gay? I have heard of it. I refuse to believe it's real. I do too. I just don't want to believe it's real. Yeah, same. Oof. That's a special level of ignorance right there. So this is back when Cam Newton was still playing pretty decent. This is pretty funny. Football season is back, which means that Superman is back. I love Superman. Giving balls to kids every time he scores a touchdown, autographing his cleats and giving it to children and disabled folks, and dabbing on the competition. Superman is an all-around great role model. I've been waiting all offseason for his return. But although I love Superman, boy, I hate Clark Kent. <laughs> Nigga, why are you always with this outfit on? Why are you dressed like a rich man's wife in the Kentucky Derby? The sweater that you have tied around your neck don't even fit your body. It's like he literally bought it just to tie it around his neck. My nigga, where do you find a burgundy Arby's hat? I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And why do you have on so many bracelets? It was like he went shopping with his woman one day. I don't know which bracelet to choose, babe. I like all of them. And then she was like, He got money. Get it all for him. But I knew your accessory game was suspect when I saw you with this rabbit's foot. That's the biggest rabbit's foot I've ever seen in my life. This nigga real life cut the foot off Peter Cottontail. The Easter Bunny is the only rabbit that damn big. And what is this deal with you not getting your pants finished, man? Nigga, I'm tired of looking at your ankles. But I know what it is. Your pants game has been fucked up. Ever since you started hanging out with Michael Jordan. And we all know that nigga got the worst dressed name ever. Do not let that man influence you, Cam. You should be looking like Superman on and off the field instead of looking like a ghetto-ass genie. <laughs> Where do you get a burgundy Arby's hat? point about the sweater around his neck was good though because it doesn't look like it fits him <laughs> he just bought it to wear around his neck like <laughs> that's a waste <laughs> Yano says options are limited to big and tall that's oh, true. none he has is off the rack that's true. That's number one overall draft pick, Cam Newton. Nothing is, is off the rack. <laughs> I could do when I first saw that, I fell the hell out. Cause when he showed Michael Jordan in the bag, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of pants. <laughs> There's a lot of fans. <clears throat> I say you look like a ghetto ass genie. 
<laughs> you said it looked like Andre 3000 and Willy Wonka got their bags mixed up. <laughs> oh my god thank you guys for hanging out with us on this Saturday we haven't been on a live Saturday in a while yeah. it's a busy month we have a lot planned the TIR holiday Christmas party is coming up yay also, it's the holiday season. A few people have gotten some presents for their for their loved ones. Again, if, if you enjoy what we do here, you have the means to feel so inclined, think about becoming a patron. And for the holiday season, think about, I don't know, buy, wear, buying this shirt and then giving it to your dad. <laughs> Whatever your dad is. I don't care what your dad is. Just like here, Dad. What the fuck is this? Is this from that stupid show you watch? <laughs> what the fuck is this? <laughs> Why, yes, Father, it is. And if your dad is really racist, then get this. Bam. Nice. Bam. Black Panther shirt. Black Panther shirt. And if you want to, you know, at work, want to support TIR on the daily, bam. TIR mug. I want one of those. I don't have one. Me too. Uh, a patron that is a, he's a higher tier patron and he had like went down and then went back up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's certain things you get at different levels of patron, like $10, you get a sticker, I think, and. Fifteen dollars, you get a tote bag or a shirt. I forget what it is, mm-hmm. um, or a mug. You get the mug. So he was like, "Well, I got all the stuff again," and he was nice enough, and he sent it to me. Isn't that nice? That is nice. So that's how I have the mug. Yes, the smiling Pascal shirt. We do have a smiling Pascal shirt because Pascal is part of. Dun dun dun. What is he part of, Tucson? The TIR Central Committee. <laughs> TIR Central Committee. I don't have one of these. I want one of these, too. Yeah. Tucson's on it. You see her? <laughs> Can we get a Rosie the Riveter Tucson shirt? Rosie the Riveter Tucson. <laughs> Would it just be the Timberland that's a face? I guess so, right? Because <laughs> I'm from New York. Because you're from New York. And you know what? In all honesty, for the live show, she showed up in Timberlands. I had to. Very, very important. Pog Chaser MLK merch. While my mother is still breathing air, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> my mother does not contact me very often. And usually when she does it, it's with this tone in her voice 
where it's you're just like, oh god, I'm so old, and you're still yelling at me like, <laughs> right? Like I don't even I don't even deal with you. Like you're just not, it's not like. And um, <clears throat> it was when we put uh, Harriet Tubman on the black card. <laughs> That's right. The disappointment in my mother's voice made mm-hmm. me bad. There's two, well, three, mm, five people that can make me feel bad when there's disappointment in their voice. And my mom was like, Jason. And when she calls me that, my, my name. Yeah. She said, Jason. That wasn't good. <laughs> she just said, just, <clears throat> like that was it. That's all she said, and she didn't. She didn't harp on it. I was like, oh man. I was like, but it was funny. She goes, like this. She just shook her head, and then she, you know, changed the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Jason's mom makes him rap to pictures of civil rights leaders. <laughs> <laughs> No, my late stepmom read my lyrics when I was an up-and-coming artist at 15, and she was like, what are you talking about? You've never seen a woman naked. Crash and a burn. Oh, yeah. You know, she was an old-school feminist. She definitely let me have it. Rightfully so. Um, so that made me feel bad. Yeah. So maybe, maybe at some point we can do Pog Chaser and Milky Maybe. But I just, oof, oof. She gave me that look. It's like, oh, man. Is there anyone that can make you feel bad too, son? No, I'm invincible. <laughs> I'm invincible. There's not one voice that makes you go, oh, fuck. No? Maybe my dad. But he can't do it anymore. He's made me sad. Uh, Sometimes I can tell you're disappointed in me. (laughs) I was disappointed in you yesterday. (laughs) You were disappointed in me yesterday. I was so mad. You didn't even respond. Well, in all fairness, I was responding to something else, but I was like, when I'm done with this, I'm going to call this woman and be like, what did you just do and why? <laughs> what did that happen? Yesterday was so outrageous. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you were very disappointed in me yesterday. I locked. I did that one time. One time. And then I found out how easy it is to break into my house. No. <laughs> I went, I was leaving to go up north to go help my dad. Recently, everything's in my car. Because I don't lock my car door. And I was like, I left the keys. In the, and the only time I lock my front door is when I leave the country. So I was like, fuck. broke in my house mm. it's good to know well Toussaint thank you very much for 
your beautiful questions and your beautiful voice. Aw, thank you, sir. And thank New York for all the goddamn sirens. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. And don't be, you didn't do it. You weren't fucking causing havoc in them streets. <laughs> did you did you wake up like you went to fucking Central High and lean on me? <laughs> <laughs> Were you part of that gaggle of black girls that sexually harassed that young lady in the bathroom? Man. You know another thing I think we did this year that was one of the funniest things ever. I'm so sad it didn't go viral is when we made Doug Lane play the game Are You a White Ally? That was funny. Bagooning. I don't get it. All right, guys. Thank you guys so much. We'll be back, or the show will be back, but Toussaint and I will be gone. Conan Neutron will be guest hosting. I, t- right now, I don't know what uh, he has in store as the guest hosts are putting together their own show. They're bringing in their guests. So the guest host thing, we've, we've upped the guest hosting. Yep. So I'm excited for that. And on that note, we... On that note are out.